to each other on discord so i just wanted it to be the first thing that we said when the episode started you know it's it's weirdly it's almost like a tradition now it's like i feel like that's what i have to say i don't know yeah. how where when or why it started but like it's too late now that's so, us f- fun story um i i at, at a bunch of haunted houses i went to this year because i try to see as many as i can um at a I bunch of haunted houses, I wouldn't, I wouldn't scream. I would just gun hands whoever jumped out at me and go, "Whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're you're stronger than I. I well, like... I know, I know that they're actors. I know that they're just people trying to do their thing, you know. So it's oh, like, yeah. I, if they get me, I'm I'm more impressed than I am scared. <laughs> you know, you know what's fucked up. So I'm like, I, as I've said many, many times before, I am the littlest, the littlest of bitches. I'm such a little bitch. Um, You've mentioned. And, once or twice, yes. It's integral to my personality. So I go to a total of like one haunted house every year because I love spooky season, but I'm just a baby. So like, you know, for tradition's sake, I go. Um, and I did go to a... What's I went to Eastern State this year. That's great. Um, yeah, and you know it's fucked up because I actually used to like work on a haunted hayride, and I took like so much joy and pleasure in like frightening people. And then I like go I've to worked one. on like, the I'm haunted hayride a... too. Yeah, I'm such a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not true. That's not true. You can you can serve it. You just can't. Uh, you just I can't, can't eat it. I can't take what I dish out. Yeah. Yeah. But I did really, really, I did really well this year, though. Because like you said, it's like, I know they're actors, and I definitely think that having been on the other side of it, it really helped. I also went- It takes away a little bit. I went last year, too. And last year, I was deaf a little. I was quite upset, because like, I, you know- I knew there was going to be a clown because there's always a clown. Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's like legally obligated. Like if you run a haunted house, haunted hayride, haunted anything, you've got to have a fucking clown. I, uh, when I went to Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios this year, um, they, they had an entire house for killer clowns from outer space. I'd it rather was, end myself. It was phenomenal. It was I, actually my favorite <laughs> house. In in episode 148, I actually I nominated as my favorite house of the night because I, I love that movie and it's and and the house had so many good special effects. 
I just like I think that is like my literal hell. I think that I would rather commit like I, I don't know what I would commit, but it it would be pretty much anything to not do that. Oh, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. I also went sure. to. Uh, you're pretty sure what? You know, someone would have carry me through it. Like it's just you hit a point where you just sit on the ground and you just like lock yourself up and you're like no. Right. I'm not going any further, right. <laughs> and I'm not going no, back. No, I had a – so I went, I went to a bunch of different haunted places this year, and it's actually good that I'm kind of covering it now because I don't think I got to talk about it. And, um, you know, in, in episode 148, me and my brothers talk about Halloween Horror Nights, but we didn't talk about the Waldorf where we ended up going the next week, and that's where they, um, that's where they filmed uh, Hell House. Mm-hmm. And um, – and there, there were several different things there, including a uh, zombie run where you have uh, flags on your on your like belt buckles, mm-hmm. and um, zombies try to get you and and get the flags. And if you lose all your flags, you like die, quote unquote. Oh, okay. That was fun. There was a hayride there. Um, I, I had a friend who, like you said, just put her head between her legs and didn't look at anything on the hayride. And I, and I gotta say, like, it, it wasn't scary at all. So I felt very embarrassed to, to be there with her among several other people. <laughs> I, see, that's, that's me. I'm her. Like, <laughs> Even when it's not scary? I don't know. Well, then again, like I said, I did way better. Like, not to brag, but I didn't even right. cry once this time around. Good. I did way and Eastern better State, than I they, they have a good team. They have a good group of people. I've actually... They do. I they're know a like, couple people who used to who used to work that and be there. I don't know if they're still there now, but, you know, go back five or six years, and I used to know who worked there. The makeup is phenomenal. Like, they do yes. a really, really good job. They have job. a good team. I definitely think, like, oh, the, please, everyone listening, take this with, like, as many grains of salt as you prefer. Maybe an entire, like, shaker full of salt. Uh-huh. But um, I, I definitely think they rely a little too much on the location, like, the spook factor of the location. Not that, like, the scenes aren't scary or anything, but honestly, that shit's too expensive. If it wasn't, like, we get free tickets because um, my partner works at Eastern State on the daytime okay. shift. Nice. Um, so, like, you know, that's totally worth it. But they're, like, you know, what, 30, 50 bucks a pop. Right. And that's, like, whew. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. <laughs> I, w- I went to Dorney Park's Haunt this year. Um, and it was it was 40. And out of their eight houses, they only had six operating. Oh, that's And, um, and... I also went to get on some of the rides, which I hadn't been on since high school. And little do I know that, like, being a bigger guy now over the last, like, 10 years since I last went on anything, I now need to wait in a designated row for bigger people. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, and, like, and like I have friends who, who aren't, like, fat. Or, like, even even the lower part of my body is, like, toned. I just have a big gut. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like I sit in these seats and I'm just like, oh, man, this is uncomfortable. And I have, like, a friend who's, like, actually works out, like, sitting next to me. And he's just like, I'm not comfortable either. And then, like, we had to, <laughs> we had to like, wait longer to get the bigger seats for bigger people and I was like I didn't know these parks cut these types of corners on these rides it makes me unhappy 
Well, I and feel like, you though. I'm really I, I'm I'm not overweight. I'm really no, not. Like I'm not. pretty average as far as like the American uh 20-year-old goes, but uh it's still it's still amazing that like I I showed up that night with so many expectations and like some Got of the houses shamed. were closed. <laughs> yeah, essentially I was fat shamed and then uh several of the haunted houses were closed. Because of, uh, like, water damage, apparently. So I was like... The real horror is property value. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mold and mildew. I feel you, though. I went to the doctor for the first time in, like, literally, like, what, five, six, ten years. And, um, you know, talked to them. And it was an okay experience. As okay as someone afraid of needles and doctors and everything can be. And then uh, I, you know, got my diagnosis sheet and I like you know was like yeah that went pretty well I didn't feel like they said anything to me at all and then I'm like reading through my diagnosis and amongst the you know insomnia and like other things they diagnosed me with they threw obesity in there (laughs) oh no just like real sneakily I was like oh and like I remember laying in bed and just like complaining because I agreed to get the flu shot like out of fear yeah (laughs) and then I was like I went to the fucking doctor and all they did was steal my blood make my arm hurt and diagnose me with fat. Like I was so <laughs> mad. <laughs> diagnose me I with mean, fat. Yeah, they just they were like, ooh. And I mean, like you said, I'm not I'm not that big. <laughs> I mean, I thickened not, up a little in college, like God intended, not, but like <laughs> And and what I'm what I like what I actually chalked it up to was like oh, like the the BMI index scale is vastly outdated. <laughs> so I like oh, yeah. after talking to a friend of mine who is a fucking doctor at a hospital, <laughs> mm-hmm. he literally told me like as we were uh hanging out the one night, he was just like he was like, Yeah, uh I think if like you were to measure pretty much this entire country, everyone would come up obese. <laughs> it's just like yeah. that's just the body mass index scale just doesn't it doesn't work anymore, at least for no. our country. Especially if you're short, which I am. I'm like, I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty small. And you're it's you're just small. Like, I am. I am small. I like, I'm at the top of the small scale. Thank you. But I am small. <laughs> I like how uh, the real, the real horror of today is uh, accepting oneself. <laughs> Maybe that's what fucking Felix needs to do. He just needs to accept Faye and her vomit black vomit spinning head can can we actually talk about the vomit a little bit more because i've had a lot of i've had like a night to think about it um (laughs) yes please let's talk about which which let's mention (laughs) let's mention once more that like we uh we're we're here reading part three only like 24 hours after reading part two because both of us just want to finish the story (laughs) to get it to get it done (laughs) so we know what's happening and um Mm -hmm. to everyone else it'll look like two weeks have passed which is pretty funny and it's 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 purely personal it's personal related reasons both of us have just been like haunted by this story and we kind of need to just get get it out of the way like even last night i was recording with frowns and the the story we read was great um as far as like winter storm like related monster story goes like really oh it was really it was seasonally uh 
accurate, seems uh, seasonally appropriate for for a December uh, story reading. And um, even as I was reading that, I was finding like parallels that reminded me of this story. And I was just mm-hmm. like, I just started thinking like, oh, so what's what's with the vomit? What's with the number <laughs> five? And and why is she like, what's she hiding? And what, why, what's with the vomit? <laughs> like, yeah, and what's with the vomit? And you just keep coming back to that. <laughs> the vomit is, is the hardest part because Nathan not only made throw, uh, Faye throw up a bunch, but she also, uh, Nathan also made a, uh, the narrator throw up a bunch. Mm-hmm. So it's like both of them were um, at least a little bit infected. Well, he mentioned that it like stains the soul and like that idea, like that concept in general is just yeah. horrifying alone. Like they yeah. could have ended it there and I would have been like, ah, oh, like- <laughs> question everything. How stained is my yeah. soul? Oh my God. I know. I don't, she's, she's dirty, man. There ain't no amount of Tide Pods that can fucking I was going to say, shit. better start drinking bleach. <laughs> Just eat Tide Pods. That's what the, the kids are. Okay. They were on That's what the story's about. That's what the story is about. It's the about the danger of eating Tide Pods. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ancient so, so here we are, uh, episode 153, the conclusion to my romantic cabin getaway with my fiance isn't quite going exactly as planned or something along <laughs> those lines. It's one could, it's a long title. <laughs> it's it's, a it's long not title. wrong. <laughs> no, it's been accurate. It's been accurate through and through. Hmm. But here we are. Oh boy. For the I'm finale. Like, yes, the finale. I'm like I'm raring to go, and I'm also kind of like, how much more can they torment me with this story? Like they well, evidently much, another how fifty many pages. More terrible. <laughs> how many more terrible things can happen to these poor idiot people? Like I don't. They start. They start shitting all over the floor, <laughs> and then it's, oh my God. And it's like, man, now that's really not going to come out of the carpet. If you had to pick one to clean up, would you rather clean up vomit or shit? Neither of them are yours. Uh, fuck, that's a question. <laughs> the philosophical question. <laughs> I'm over here cackling like I have any fucking idea what I would choose. <laughs> it's tough because, like, I've only you know ever what? cleaned up animal shit before. Yeah. And... You know... And I've cleaned up a lot of like ex girlfriends' vomit, and you know what? I mm-hmm. I might just go with shit on this one. I you know I I think it depends on the texture. If it's <laughs> well, it absolutely like, does. If it's like you know a regular shit, then I would take that one. You know, because you can just like pick it up and throw it out, and then clean the floor, and then realize that you'll never feel clean again afterwards. Right. Which is right. true. Yeah, absolutely. But like, I've tell you, I, I've cleaned up some chunky vomit before, and like, ugh. God. See, the, the thing with vomit, and and I'm glad that we're derailing in this topic because vomit <laughs> is pretty accurate to the story. The thing about vomit is the kind of acidic bile smell. Yes, that, it's that so sits in strong. your nose, and yes. I'm I'm like replacements. I'm like the Yokozuna from replacements. I if if I get a hint of that like acidic, metally bile smell, I will get sick. 
I, I mm. might not throw up. It might take a lot. But, like, I, I once saw a little gluten-allergic girl throw up several wheat beers worth of alcohol. Just watery, gross bile all Ugh. over my carpet floor before. And having to clean that up is it like sits at the top of my like worst experiences. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> I uh, I had some friends throw me a surprise graduation party, which was great. But then uh, the anxiety of planning the surprise graduation party um, destroyed everyone. So by the time I got there. Everyone was, like, literally 10 shots in. I wish I was exaggerating. So there was a great deal of sickness. And, yeah, (laughs) I had a lot of work to do. (laughs) At your own party? Yep. It was a really, really great, like, first 30 minutes to an hour. Okay. (laughs) And then after that, it was like, yeah, it was like mom time the rest of the night. And, uh, yeah, I want you to know that vomit in a sink, it isn't as good as it sounds like it is. Like, you think it's a good idea at the time because it drains, right? But it's like, no, it doesn't drain always. And then somebody has to scoop it out. No. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, yeah. It was my mom's bathroom. <sighs> oh, wow. Ah, memory. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll take the shit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'll take the shit. And I'll take the shit. Answering important questions here on Lots of Pasta for our three-year anniversary, vomiter shit, and the shit comes through. Even if it were like watery, fecally diarrhea, I'd still be like, uh, yeah, that's fine, because like at, at least I can pretend like it's my dog's and I'm doing it because I care about him. Yeah, that's a little, it's a little harder for me. So I'll have to put that in the back of my brain and think about it until I die. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but the happy story. anniversary, yes. babe! <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, and um, we're we're gonna just, you know, on that note. <laughs> We're going to jump into the story. Perfection. <laughs> and I, and I, want, I want you to hold on to that question, uh, vomit or diarrhea, to be answered gonna be, after the show. <laughs> I'm going to be holding it, trust me. It's sitting in my mind and it's never going away. <laughs> All right, so let me pick up with part t- 14. <laughs> oh, shit. Whew. Deep breaths. <laughs> The last time I updated, Faye's older sister, Becca, came to visit us with her infant son, Caleb. Yeah, can we talk about that again for a second? Um, Her fucking infant son. Uh, He's like, and she knew. I'm pretty sure he said back in the story that she, like, you know, knows what's going on and wants to check. And he, it's like, hey, yo, your sister might be possessed. And she clearly, like, they know some kind of, her family's been hiding something. They they, they got secrets. Yeah, and he's like, hey. Your sister's head's, like, spinning around, and she's puking black, oily vomit and shit. <laughs> we really and are Becca's getting like, there. Becca's like, wow, that's a really great time for me to bring my fucking infant son and come visit her. And not tell you anything about her weird past. Perfect. The presence of the child seems to have awakened something in Faye, because her sleep disturbances have become more 
erratic, and her unusual behavior has intensified. They stayed for almost a week, but left abruptly after a few weird experiences with Faye. Becca seemed to be growing Shock. angry with Faye, right? Uh, growing angry with Faye over the course of a few days, although I could never really discern why. One night when Faye was asleep, Becca and I sat on the couch and talked more about what had been happening. I asked her why she seemed so hostile towards her sister that day, she wouldn't even speak to her, and Becca replied that Faye really has a problem letting things go. If she's mad at someone, she's mad for weeks. If she's hurt, she's hurt for years. She can't forgive, and she can't forget. That's not ominous at all. I asked, did you do something to make her mad? Are you two fighting? And Becca denied that they were having any sort of conflict and said that she was just speaking in general terms, having grown up with Faye. I asked if there was something in the past that made Faye <laughs> angry, and Becca sharply responded, nobody did anything to Faye, nothing happened to her. <laughs> Convincing. <sighs> the biggest, longest sigh. <laughs> At that point, she stood up and went upstairs, claiming she needed to go check on Caleb and close the door without saying goodnight. Fucking bitch. Oh, wow. Well, her name's fucking Becky. I mean, oh, like... Becca. Oh, my God, Becca. Yeah. Faye is sometimes difficult to handle because she's proud and stubborn and the strongest person I've ever met. But her sister is like an obsidian wall. You can't get any information out of her. You can't read her poker face. You can't know what she's really thinking, ever. But I know that she knows something, and maybe I can't get it out of her, but I figured I'd be able to get it out of her mom. Becca and Faye's mom, Laura, agreed to Skype chat with me this week. This time I'm going for the throat. Fuck yeah, Felix. I successfully removed all the vomit stains from the house. <laughs> nice. So Faye isn't talking to them in the dark anymore. <laughs> also a great ending to that sentence. Oh, but good. she is still getting worse. I feel like she's slipping away. Seeing Faye holding Caleb on the couch with her eyes rolled back in her head and smiling was one of the most disturbing memories I have of this entire ordeal. There is something about Faye and that child that deeply unsettles me, but I've been keeping quiet and trying to make sure that Caleb is safe. I have no reason to believe Faye would ever hurt another person except for the one time in college when she punched out a drunk girl at a party for grabbing my ass and saying I'd hit it. But as far as animals and kids go, Faye is angelic. That night, the Becca stormed off into bed mid-conversation. Faye did something odd. I woke up to her mumbling in the dark, and when I turned on the light, she was standing at the far end of the room, cradling a pillow in her arms and swaying back and forth, half singing a lullaby. The words were unrecognizable, but the melody sounded familiar. I called out to her and asked, Sweetie, what are you doing? And she replied in a low, grumbling voice. I always wanted to be a big sister. Her speech was slurred. She sounded drugged. I got up and gently ushered her back to bed and took the pillow away. And when I did, she said, Now I want to be a mommy. I rubbed her neck and assured her that I do want to start a family with her someday. And that she would be a great mom. And she then mumbled, He's a little corpse. 
I asked, what do you mean? But she never replied. She just started that rhythmic breathing that lets you know your partner is fast asleep. Theory. <laughs> right. I have a theory. Sorry. Okay. Theory. Okay. Faye, ha- does, Faye does have a younger sibling. He died like hell. Like, <laughs> like mega died. Oh, mega death. Mega died That's and fair. it's her fault. That's fair. I hadn't thought of that. Angela visited our house again the next day, just after the sun went down. For those of you who don't recall, Angela belongs to the Shoshone tribe in California, and she is the daughter of a very important tribal elder. She first visited me and Faye when we got back to California and told us that a malevolent spirit called the Hollow One was infatuated with my fiancé. She said that there was a dark cloud over Faye that she could not be easily removed. This time, Angela brought her friend, who is a hypnotist, and they inspected the house and the yard. We told them about the barf stains and Faye's claim that he's in the stains. He gets up at night and walks around in the dark. Then, in private, I told them about baby Caleb's presence and how it exacerbated Faye's behavior. I also showed them where I found the new dream catcher. Angela said that the entity has many names and is known to several different Native American groups. It is older than the Skinwalkers and the progenitor of many evil spirits that inhabit different places near the Rocky Mountains and Southwest. Her friend referred to it as a soul trader that snatches up a person's essence and takes it down into the dark, then enters the remaining body to seek out more victims. I don't know where the dark is, but allegedly, that is where Faye is headed. With too much exposure to this thing, both Faye and I had become tainted by it. This is why we were vomiting dark bile, and the stains still carried remnants of that evil. Angela spoke with Faye for a long time and concluded that she was still Faye, but on her way to somewhere else. She's making a spiritual journey into a place that she thinks is good and safe, but in reality... She's being coaxed out of this world. Despite what has happened to us, a lot of this whimsical metaphysical talk is sometimes hard for me to swallow, but the hypnotist's session with Faye did a good job of convincing me that there is something here inside my house with us always watching. The hypnotist had Faye lie in our bed, and we brought chairs from the dining room upstairs to sit with her. She put her hand on Faye's forehead and hummed a chant for a while and then covered Faye's eyes with her palm and asked her a few questions. They were things like, what is your name? And who is your fiance? All of Faye's answers were normal. Then the hypnotist hummed some more and lifted her hand. Faye's eyes were rolled back in her head, which only happens when she's in a sleepwalking state. Her mouth was twitching a little bit. The hypnotist asked, Who are you? And she responded, I am Faye. The important parts of the conversation went a bit like this. Faye, can you tell us who is in this house? Faye raised her arm slowly and pointed at each person in the room and said their name, even though she was not looking at them. She knew where everyone was. Felix, Becca... Angela, you. And then she pointed at the wall and said, Caleb. He was in the other room. The hypnotist asked, Is there anyone else? What about the man who has been following you? She shook her head and said, 
Right now, he's outside. We all glanced out the window to the tree line where I had first seen the figure walking back and forth in the middle of the night, mimicking Faye's sleepwalking. This time there was no one there. Angela asked, What does he say to you? Is he talking to you right now? Faye replied, I can't hear him. He's facing the other way. The hypnotist asked, And what are the dream catchers for? Who makes them? Faye did not respond. She smiled a little bit. I butted in and said, Honey, I found your hair wrapped in a dream catcher outside. Did you do that? She put her finger to her lips and shushed me. Then she put her palm flat against the wall like she was feeling for a pulse. After a few moments, she said, He's here. Right when she finished her sentence, Caleb burst into tears. Becca and Angela rushed out of the room to go check on him. The hypnotist and I remained with Faye. The hypnotist finally went for broke and said, Faye, sweetie, you wrote the number five on the window in the other room. You wrote it backwards. Why did you do that? What does it mean? Did you write it for someone outside to see? In that moment, Faye's eyes rolled forward and her little green irises finally showed. She immediately looked toward the door that led to the hallway and said, No, no, he's listening now. Then she began hyperventilating and struggling to speak the words. He'll find out. The last thing she said was, Felix. My name in a deep guttural voice. It wasn't her own. Then the hypnotist pressed her hand against Faye's eyes and spoke a loud command in her native language. I think it was Shoshone, but I'm not actually sure where the group's affiliated. Faye immediately woke up and seemed very confused about where she was, then started crying and reached out for me. I hurried over and held her in my arms. Her body was so cold it was like she was a corpse. When she was crying, she said, He wants to kill you. He wants you dead. I saw you in the trees. Angela and the hypnotist, I haven't given her name by the way because I don't want you to have to memorize a million names, but we hurried around the house, blessing it and burning sage, then also recommended I call in a Catholic priest. Shit's about to get real. For Faye's mm-hmm. personal comfort, since she is a Catholic. They left after a few words of parting, and Becca seemed really angry and scared at this point. She remained in her room for the rest of the night. I got a call about an hour later from Angela, who told me that she had discussed the situation with the hypnotist, and they believe that Faye is in extreme denial about something. Perhaps some sort of trauma. And they said that she has repressed it so well that it was consigned to a place in her subconscious that only years of therapy or hypnosis could unearth. It was in a place in her mind that could not even be accessed by talking to her in her sleep. That is where the number five rests, and that is why the entity hasn't found it yet, despite communicating with Faye in her sleep virtually every night. He's drilling her brain like miners digging for gold. And the fun didn't end there. We all went to sleep pretty early that night because of all the drama, but as I've learned on so many other occasions, going to sleep upset usually results in night terror or some other sleep disturbance for Faye. At about 2 a.m., she leapt out of bed, jolting me awake in the process, and bombed down the hall like there was a fire. She started bashing her fists against the door to the guest room, but didn't utter a single word. Her eyes were shut. I flicked on the light and stood there in the hall just for a second, scared stiff, but when baby Caleb started crying, I snapped out of it and rushed over. 
I bear-hugged my fiancé to try to get her to stop making so much noise, and in return, she tried to bite me. Faye has never been violent toward me in her life, even in her sleep. She is always a very passive sleepwalker. Creepy, but passive. This time, she was trying to rip my throat out. She was trying to draw blood. I fended her off and sort of apprehended her, then walked her back to the bedroom. She was basically wearing me like a straitjacket. When I carefully put her back in bed, she whispered, You'll go up in the trees. He went down in the hole. Becca was understandably furious the next day, but she swallowed her anger and drove Faye down to the Catholic church at the town center. I went to work. Apparently, they finally got one of the priests to agree to visit next week to bless the house. They explained that this wouldn't be enough, so he said he'd speak with the bishop of his d- d- di- diocese? Diocese? Do you yeah, I don't know that. Diocese? I don't know I'm that word. Sure. I'm not Catholic. Um, me neither. <laughs> I mean, Dio, God, but I, I don't. De- oh, de- okay. De- there you go. Yeah. Nice. There's your I context clues. Making- I might just be making that up, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that could take a while. Oh, uh, yeah. That's also the next line. <laughs> that evening, Becca informed me that she changed her flight and she now intended to leave in two days. I begged her to set aside her differences with Faye and try to get through to her. I said Faye needs her big sister right now, but Becca wouldn't budge. She seems to be holding a monolithic grudge about something neither of them will tell me. I ordered pizza, Faye's favorite, in a lame attempt at lightening the mood around the house. But the two would only have casual, light conversation with each other, and the tension in the house was so thick, I could feel it in my stomach. Faye and I retired to our room early and watched Game of Thrones in bed. We always record it on Sunday because Faye's at work, and then we watch it during the week. I asked her if she remembered telling me that the imposter wanted me dead, or that I was going to be put up in the trees, and she said she didn't recall saying any of that, but that she did have a dream about seeing me impaled on a tree branch high up in the air. She said my skin and hair were missing. Faye fell asleep pretty quickly, but I couldn't sleep at all. I remembered that Nathan had left me a voicemail a few days prior, and I had forgotten to call him back, so I grabbed my phone and went downstairs. The house was quiet. Becca and Caleb were already asleep upstairs. I turned the TV on low to mask my conversation with Nathan. It was midnight in Colorado, but he answered the phone and asked me how everything was going, and I told him everything. Nathan had a lot to say. He apologized for making me and Faye sick, but said that a simple purging process was a very common treatment for many physical and spiritual maladies in his tribe. However, my description of the Barfstain events, it obviously did not work, and we were still under the influence of the imposter. He said if we came back to Colorado, he would bring us to the elders of his community and request that they perform a more serious healing ritual. I told him that that would be Faye's call entirely, but I doubt she would go, or that the imposter would let her. Last month, when I was in the cabin by myself, there was a blizzard that shut down the only road down the mountain. The ranger couldn't come up and check on me. But Tiway and Nathan, being the badass gentlemen they are, actually hiked up the mountain through the snow and checked on me. fuck why does why does he do this he just recaps shit i don't know i guess i guess for the sake of the what's the word the medium i don't know 
Yeah, I don't know anyone who would just pick up the third part and just ignore the first parts, though. I it's... know, especially this long. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can read that story at the bottom of the post if you haven't, but basically on their hike back down, they heard Faye's voice calling out to them from inside one of the abandoned mines on Pike's Peak. T.Y. went in to investigate and was dragged into the dark by an unseen creature or animal. Nathan eventually found him dead, and parts of his skin had been flayed. The reason that I hadn't been able to get a hold of Nathan for several days was because he and a group of men from his community went back to Pike's Peak to investigate the circumstances of his father's death and to explore the cabin. They camped for a few nights and even spent one night in the woods next to the cabin. Nathan heard Tiwa's voice, calling out for help over and over, crying and speaking Nathan's name. However, occasionally the voice would cry out in Zuni, which is a language that some Pueblo tribes speak, but their tribe does not. They speak Hopi, so Nathan was fairly certain this was not in fact his father. They also heard children weeping in the forest. One of Nathan's friends left the tents to take a piss, and he claims he saw a naked child with grayish skin standing a dozen yards off, facing away and looking up in the trees. He looked like a stiff corpse, and was standing high on the bottles of his feet. This sight apparently scared Nathan's friends so bad he took off, grabbed his things, and went to hike back down the mountain, in the dark, in the cold, by himself. Nathan and others tried to stop him, but it was too dangerous to go after him, and they haven't seen him since. R.I.P. That guy. Nathan told me that he had recurring dreams of a child while on the mountain. Of a child and of Faye. He said to me, Tell me about the child, Felix. During our conversation, I had been standing in the living room facing the sliding glass door, looking out in the backyard. Right when Nathan said, Tell me about the child, I saw a large shadow move behind the orange tree outside. I told Nathan to hold on a second and went to grab the flashlight from the kitchen. When I got there, I almost collapsed in fright. The front door was wide open. From my front door, you can see the tree line across the street. Someone was walking behind the trees. I could see them moving slowly between them. I set down the phone and ran upstairs to wake Faye and Becca, but Faye wasn't in bed. I frantically rushed to Becca's room to see if Faye was with her, but Becca was fast asleep and was really disturbed at my urgency when I woke her up. We turned on the light and she went to grab Caleb, but he wasn't in the little crib Faye brought with him. He was gone! Oh, fuck. Becca turned into the Hulk for about point second, five seconds flat. She started shrieking in rage and terror, screaming, Where is he? Where's my baby? Over and over. We dashed around the house looking for Faye and Caleb, but we couldn't find them. And then I realized that she had taken him outside. We ran out there, barefoot, straight into the trees, and came up behind Faye. My fiancé was standing there in her underwear, looking up into the trees. Her arms were outstretched, holding Caleb up in the air, as if offering him to someone above. Oh. High up on one of the branches was the dream catcher, the one I had taken down and broken only days earlier, and now it was intact. Becca grabbed Caleb out of Faye's hand and shoved her to the ground and then took the baby back inside. I picked up Faye and rushed her back into the house, 
neighbors were starting to come out of their homes to see what all the commotion was. Faye woke up on her way back upstairs and broke down crying, apologizing to the both of us. Becca packed up all her things and stormed out of the house, grabbing Faye's car keys and drove off. The police showed up within a few minutes and I had to explain to him that the sisters had a big fight and that got taken outside. I said that Faye was drunk, so she took it a bit far and ran across the street. Thankfully, nobody saw the baby, so I didn't get arrested for child endangerment. What else could I have said? They'd never have believed me if I told them the truth. They checked Faye out to make sure she hadn't gotten beaten up and asked her repeatedly if I was treating her all right. Then they left. Becca drove straight to the airport. Faye and I had to go pick up the car the next day. I've got a Skype chat we're scheduled with Faye's mom tomorrow, but Becca texted me and said, ask her about five. She knows. If I get an answer out of her, I'll post a brief update here, but I won't make another post for a while. I'm sorry. Thank you for all the support over the past month. Now I need to try and put the broken pieces of my home life back together. Damn. Damn. That was one hell of a part, and this part's even longer, and this is all you. That's just like, uh, I'm sorry, I'm like... That that went from 0 to 50 in 3.5? Yeah, really? Well, especially because I feel like the last episode, things were a little bit slower. Yeah. And like then yeah. like this one part, I feel like more happened. <laughs> <laughs> the the baby stuff is new and I'm and it's not great. Sorry, I'm I, not happy I'm about sorry. it. <laughs> yeah, don't like that. Leave the baby alone, please. Yeah, no no offering the baby to Satan, please. I'm just no. I'm not I don't know if I can handle that right now. This kind of like pushes me a little further into my theory though that maybe she had like a younger sibling that she maybe, like, sacrificed in exchange to, like, get out or something like that? Maybe to, like, save her own skin as a kid? Or, ma or maybe she was just brainwashed it. as a kid and, and, and ended up getting her younger sibling lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Led astray. Mm. All right. Sorry, also, sorry if you could hear my cat. She just, like, gets I, moods. It was very funny. I laughed. She's like, yeah, sorry. She just like yelled the whole time. I like just sitting on. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess she wasn't feeling the baby thing either. No, clearly that the energy is all wrong. No, she's like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Part fifteen. I am so sorry for the length of this post. It is enormous. I actually have to split it in two because of Reddit's word count limit, but this is it. For better or worse, the end has finally come. After I post the other half of this update in a few days, I will never speak of these events again. I have lost far too much, and it hurts me too deeply to continue. That's good. Foreshadowing. It's been a- oh boy. Well, he's- he's alive. Yeah. So far. <laughs> It's been a long time since I talked about my fiancé and the events surrounding our vacation at her parents' cabin in Colorado, but I think enough time has passed. I finally unearthed the secrets Faye's family has been hiding from me. No sleep has been remarkably supportive, so even though what I'm about to tell you is deeply personal, you've helped us get this far. You deserve to know what I found. We moved a few weeks ago. 
I got a new job, so we found a new place a few towns over. It's only an hour's drive from our old place, and it's the same distance from Faye's work, but in the opposite direction. As if by the law of horror film cliches, the strange activity that plagued us at night ceased entirely for a week when we moved. However, it started up again after a while, just as I feared it would. Our new home has not yet been blessed by Angela when the activity started up again. She's the daughter of a Shoshone tribe elder who saged and blessed our old home a few weeks prior. Oh boy, this is going to be the, embarrassing. There it is. <laughs> the Atan Ahanotuga Tukwa, the imposter, has not given up on Faye. The game is to wear us down until we just give up. New house. I had a Skype chat set up with Faye's very reticent. I know reticent. Reticent. Mm-hmm. I know that word. I just have. I don't think I've ever had to say reticent. that loud. Reticent. Reticent mother, but per no sleep's warnings, I waited until after we moved. The fear was that Laura might divulge something over Skype that the imposter could use against us. The more it discovers about us, the more closely it can mimic me and any of Faye's family members, living or dead. When she's asleep, Faye is highly susceptible to suggestion. The running hypothesis no sleep has developed is that there are certain things the imposter needs to know about Faye in order to fully infiltrate her, to control her, and to kill her. We don't know what it plans to do with her, but we do know that it is especially curious about the significance of number five, which Faye drew on the window while sleepwalking. She gets agitated anytime five is brought up, but I cannot coherently explain why. I think that once it learns the meaning of the number, it will have full access to Faye and will be able to do whatever it's planning with her. I sat on the couch with my laptop and Skyped Laura around 10pm one night in our new place, about a half an hour after Faye had fallen asleep. I had to be extremely aggressive in order to break Laura's wall of lies about her family's past, and just when she seemed ready to crack, Faye walked out of the bedroom. We now live in a one-story house. It was so dark in the hall that she scared the shit out of me when I saw (laughs) movement out the corner of my eye. She stood there in the shadows, rigid and still. Her entire body was stiff, and her head was craned all the way back in a painful position. Her chin pointed at the ceiling and her arms straight up the air in a hallelujah gesture. She hadn't sleepwalked in a while now, so I immediately told Laura I'd call her back and jumped up. Faye shushed me and wiggled her fingers, arms still outstretched. She looked like a praying mantis in repose. I asked, Faye, what is it? She smiled and replied, Do you know about her? She closed her hands and one finger pointed at the ceiling. I said I didn't know what she was talking about and asked, What? No what? I looked up at the ceiling and saw nothing. Faye paused. She typically pauses for long periods between sentences while sleepwalking and then said, There's an old woman up there. She lives in the attic. She's so friendly. She remembered my birthday. My skin crawled. It felt like insects skittering under my clothes when she said that. Faye says a lot of disturbing things and I've grown used to it, but occasionally she still surprises me. I've asked her more than once about this old woman. And she said, she sleeps right above our bed. Faye brought her arms down to her sides and her muscles relaxed. She stopped answering my questions. I walked her back into the bedroom and gently tucked her in. That night I lay awake in the dark, staring up at the ceiling. I imagined the corpse of an old woman stuck up inside the drywall or dangling from the rafters in the attic. I couldn't shake the feeling now that our unwanted guest had moved in with us and was now pretending to be a friendly stranger to trick Faye. 
That night I dreamed of a dark stain spreading itself out across the ceiling in the shape of a large man, just like the vomit stains in our house a few weeks prior. As I was falling asleep, I thought I heard something heavy dragging itself around up there. Faye's mother. Laura. <laughs> Laura called the following evening. Faye wasn't home from work yet, so we had a good hour-long conversation before things got uncomfortable. I had to spend a lot of time getting her back into that emotional space where she could open up about her daughter, and when she finally did, I was astonished. It felt like the first time Laura had ever told me the truth about anything. I don't have any proof that she was being honest, but I can hear it in her voice. It is true that Faye was five years old when she developed her unusual sleep disorder, but the number five does not symbolize that. It goes a lot deeper. As I mentioned before in a previous update, Faye's parents lied to me and told me she had been visiting the cabin in Pikes Peak regularly throughout their life until she was 13, and yet Faye had claimed she had never been there before, ever. In reality, Faye went there a few times as a child, but her last time was at age five. She and her father, Greg, were outside building a snowman, but then Faye walked to the tree line and began speaking with someone that Greg could not see. She spoke her own name and said a few other things that Greg couldn't hear, and then had some sort of seizure and became catatonic. When she came to, she cried for hours, but there was apparently more to the story. Just as Faye got home from work and walked in the door, I heard Laura say, a few months before that, I was pregnant. The second I covered the mouthpiece and said, hi, sweetie, Laura hung up the phone. I kept this revelation to myself for a while. Laura didn't return my calls after Faye went to bed, so I never found out what happened to her pregnancy. Did she have a miscarriage? An abortion? Did she give up the baby for adoption? Was it not Greg's child? Millions of questions swarmed my mind. I didn't sleep at all, and I could barely hide my thoughts from Faye. She knew something was wrong. She's quite perceptive and can read me like a book, but I acted like I had a stomach ache and went to bed. That night, I had an absolutely terrible dream. Probably the worst one I ever had. In it, an adult Faye attacked her pregnant mother. She was sleepwalking and screaming wildly, pummeling her mother, just like she had pummeled the guest door when her guest bedroom door when her sister and infant nephew, Becca and Caleb, visited us last month. There was blood everywhere in the dream, and Faye ran off into the woods with the fetus. It was so violent, I jerked awake, nearly screaming. That's when I woke fun. up, Faye was yeah, that's nice, super nice. <laughs> getting some PT vibes. He's gonna walk into the bathroom, turn on the light, and there's just gonna be a fetus chilling in the sink. Yeah, just crying. <laughs> crying, not having a good time at all. No, not having a good time. Your hypothesis is kind of coming true, by the way. I just, like, the minute that Faye was like, I always wanted to be a big sister, I was like, oh. Child. you were gonna be, and yeah. now it's your fault that you're not. <laughs> yeah. When I, I mean, we don't know it's her fault, but I'm, like, pretty sure it's it pretty is. Sure, pretty sure I can blame a person. When I woke up, Faye was sitting upright in bed, staring out the window. She was awake. I could tell because her posture was normal, and her eyes weren't rolled back in her head or blissfully sealed shut. She said, did you hear it too? Took me a while to figure out where I was. When I saw her sitting there in a pristine white t-shirt, I sighed in relief. There was no blood anywhere. It was just a dream. But before I could answer her question, I heard a baby crying. We live in a bigger suburban neighborhood now, so it was entirely possible that it was just a sound from one of the nearby houses. But Faye's reaction to it really disturbed me. The look on her face made me think the sound was causing her physical pain. She cringed and shut her eyes, trying not to cry. 
I cupped her face in my hands and told her it was okay, but as I did, another voice rang out from the dark. It was a little girl, and she was speaking as if to a baby. From what I could hear, she said, When do we go inside? Up in the trees? Where? Starting to cry. Not in the hole. Not down there. Faye started crying too. I looked out the window but couldn't see anything. She had no explanation for why she was so upset other than, He's back. He's here. I know it's him. I didn't want to scare her, but I completely agreed. Conversation with Nathan. I had a missed call from Nathan the next morning when I woke up. It was Saturday and Faye and I had plans to get new furniture at Ikea. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Honestly, live in the Ikea. (laughs) It's a well-known fact that Ikea is a ward for demons. I was going to say, all the Swiss, they're they're too pure. (laughs) Like white bread. (laughs) While she was in the shower, I returned Nathan's call. He answered on the first ring. He sounded terrible. Honestly, like, fucking props to Nathan. Like, just, sorry, I want to derail Nathan's the real MVP. No, you're fine. Nathan, this poor bastard, he's, like, trying to help these people. He's lost his father. He's chilling in the woods in the snow trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Like, he is suffering for these people. Like. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's really unfortunate that that's the case because he's such a good character. Exactly. Yeah. The first... (laughs) The first thing he said was, Felix, do you know anything about the child? A few weeks prior, he had said, tell me about the child, and I had no idea what he was talking about. Now, I had a pretty clear idea. So I whispered to him that Faye's mother had been pregnant when Faye was five, but I had no idea what became of the baby. He told me to get as much information from Laura at all costs, but to keep it from Faye. He also told us he was going to mail us a special herbal mixture, mugwort, damiana, and kalezaka something, to make into tea before bed. He said that it promotes good dreams and therefore would shield us from some of the imposter's intrusions. I asked Nathan to explain what he meant, but he very simply said, the Atan Anotagua, sorry guys, I'm never going to get this right, <laughs> does not read minds. It's it not easy. dreams. Oh, it's like a Freddy Krueger monster. Yeah, so it doesn't read minds, it reads dreams. This was an astonishing revelation to me. It explains so much about the cabin. The imposter mimicked Faye's grandfather because she probably had a dream about him at the cabin. And it mimicked my mother for the same reason. It mimicked the people that Greg saw die in the war because he frequently had nightmares about them. The former owner of the cabin, Jennifer, heard her dead daughter's voice in the forest at night because she regularly dreamed about her. Who wouldn't have painful dreams of their own child who passed away? The creature mimics the people it learns about through the dreams of its victims and repeats them in the forest to coax them outside. It also listens to the things people say when they are awake. This is why we heard so many unrecognizable and familiar voices at the same time. Some of those voices belong to other victims. The thing wanders around in the dark, learning from its targets, sharpening its skills, and pretending. That's how it hunts. So since I was getting nearer to the significance of the number five, the information the imposter so desperately sought, Faye was in greater danger. My own dreams could betray our safety. Nathan continued, and I'm just paraphrasing because I can't remember everything he said verbatim. 
Faye is the most fascinating person the Atan Anotogukua has ever encountered. Her dreams are mysterious to it. She is a puzzle to be solved. And most of all, when she speaks, when it speaks to her through her dreams, she speaks back. I guess you could say it has a very dark fixation with her, perhaps even love, a putrid form of it anyway. It was true. Faye mirrored the imposter's darkness when it looked into her. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Oh, what a lovely baby. You have so much to say, and none of it is of substance. Are you going to sit with me, or are you going to just yell? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, she's the worst. You're fine. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> she's just like... <sighs> hey! <laughs> she's like... Yo! <laughs> Yo! Yo! It was true. Faye mirrored the imposter's darkness. When it looked into her, it didn't find all of the hopes and dreams and fears it saw in others. Instead, it saw a deep well of impenetrable blackness, and it knew there was something hidden beneath it. Whatever it plans to do with the information it seeks, it knows that five is the light that will reveal the bottom of the well and everything inside it. Cold sweat matted every inch of my skin during this conversation. I pressed the phone tighter to my ear so as to not miss a word. I asked, Why does it even need Faye to find the answer? Her parents probably know what the number means too. Nathan said something in his native language, although he, as though he was speaking to a person sitting in the room with him. He then said, Her parents haven't been to the cabin in a very long time. Its connection to them is weak. Maybe it can't keep hold of someone for very long if they aren't on the mountain. After all, Faye has had her sleep disorder since she first went to Pike's Peak, but as the years passed, the entity faded from her life. It only returned when she came back. I heard the shower turn off, the glass door slid open, and Faye began moving around in the bathroom. I walked outside onto the patio and closed the door behind me. But what does it want, Nathan? I, I mean, once it learns everything it needs, what does it plan to do? Nobody will give me a straight answer. Again, Nathan said something I could not understand. He was talking to someone else. Perhaps one of the elders of his community was with him. It is one of the old evils, he said. Our people have believed in them since the beginning. When a person dies, sometimes they become a... What do you call them? A wraith. A haunting. But these entities were here long before. So many horror films Faye and I had cheerfully watched came flooding back into my mind. So like a demon. I said. I, I can't tell you how many movies I've seen where a family finds out that the ghost in their house is actually a demon. And for a few obscure reasons, it's much worse. I felt like I was about to be given that speech. Nathan cleared his throat. Well, no, not exactly. We don't believe in hell or any other equivalent place. Our interpretation of the other worlds is very complex. But basically, this type of entity, they take you away. Not your body, your spirit. They take it out into the dark, away from this world and its light. So far away. Eternities upon eternities away. The distance drives your spirit completely mad, and then you become one of them. That's what it does. He separates you from where you are supposed to go in the afterlife. It steals you from yourself. So yeah, good news all around. 
I also asked Nathan how he was coping with his father's death and pointed out that he sounded especially dreary today. Again, I expressed my condolences and said I was most honored to have known Tuay and that we are alive because of him. Nathan replied that he knows his father's spirit lives on through his family and in the sacred earth where they live. For that reason, he does not mourn his death. However, Nathan also said something that made my hand go cold as I clutched the phone. He said, I keep having the same nightmare every night and keeps me awake when it's over. I'm exhausted. I asked him to tell me about the dream as I had been having terrible ones lately too. He said, it's the cabin. I see it in my dreams. It's sitting there in the dark and there's a bad storm. I'm standing in the distance, looking at it. A light turns on inside and I walk towards it. As I approach, the front door slowly opens and something tells me in my heart not to step inside. But I do every time I do. When I'm inside, the light cuts out and it's very dark. From the living room, I can hear my father's voice calling out to me from the bedroom. He's speaking in our language and sounds happy and peaceful. He tells me to come with him. He wants to see my face before he goes to be with our ancestors. He calls me Hanantu, my light, the nickname I was given as a child. But when I go to push the bedroom door open, I wake up to the sound of a child crying every time. Nathan went on to explain that he feels these dreams are a sign that he must return to the cabin and the site of Tuay's death. I said, It could be a trap, you know. In fact, I'm sure it is. Nathan spoke once more in his language to whoever was in the room with him, and then paused. He finally sighed and said, You might be right, but it really feels like him. I made him promise not to go back to the cabin. He agreed and said he'd call me in a few days. I thanked him again for his father's sacrifice. The secrets unravel. A few days passed in relative peace. Laura did not return my calls and Becca, Faye's sister, did not return my text. Bunch of bitches. The standoffishness of this family drives me insane. When Faye and I got home from doing groceries one evening, a package had arrived in the mail. It contained the herbs Nathan had talked about and instructions on how to make them into tea. Not too much, read the little note. She'll get high as fuck. I brewed some of it up and drank it, and when she was finished, I jokingly told her, Actually, we're sending you on a vision quest. This is going to be really intense. <laughs> she was not amused. I, I am amused, because that's kind of what I was saying. <laughs> like, like, honestly, I'm um, so in, Indian, Indian vision quests, a uh, little, little bit of peyote, you know, outside in a desert somewhere. Yeah, like, we'll have a fun time. We both slept soundly that night. No bad dreams, no strange activity outside, no weird sounds. The next morning there was a knock at the door, so light it only woke me up. I'm the light sleeping insomniac of the family. I snuck out of bed, trying not to wake Faye, and crept to the front door. It was Laura. She had come to our new home totally unannounced, uninvited. I immediately knew there was about to be a shitstorm. I couldn't begin to imagine what she was doing here, but I knew by the look on her face that there was trouble. I invited her inside and informed her that Faye was still asleep and she was actually relieved and said she wanted to talk to me alone. Oh boy. <laughs> right. Here it comes. Here it comes. Deep breath. I actually have anxiety right now. From her bag, <laughs> she, br- 
<laughs> From her bag, she produced a photo album. We sat on the couch where she quietly apologized to me for everything. For being constantly evasive, for lying, and for letting us go to that cabin in the first place. What the fuck? <laughs> Honestly, like, good start, Honestly, Julie. what the fuck? I waved away her ramblings and demanded to know what she wanted. I had absolutely had enough of all of this and wanted to get to the bottom of things. Laura dropped her voice to a whisper and opened the photo album. As she turned the pages, I realized that it was actually a scrapbook, a very elaborate one that had taken years of effort to construct. There were drawings, photos, designs, letters, postcards, even a necklace and some flattened flowers. I saw pictures of Faye I had never seen before. She was absolutely adorable as a child. Her glowing smile poked out beneath little strawberry locks and photo after photo. Laura said, this is what I wanted to show you. I don't know how to talk to Faye about it. I was amazed. It took expert handiwork to craft something like this. You made this? I asked. She slipped further into the scrapbook and revealed a few old pictures of herself in the later stages of pregnancy. The centerpiece of one of those pages was a photograph of Laura, big-bellied and bearing a youthful smile, and little five-year-old Faye curiously resting her ear on her mother's tummy. It was a priceless image, and one that hadn't seen the light of day in decades. Faye and I put this together, actually, she replied, when she was very little. Made sense. Faye is one of the most talented arts and crafts hobbyists I've ever known. So, what happened? I asked. Faye looked over her shoulder and down the hall. She obviously feared Faye would wake up. His name was Christopher, she said. Tears welled up in her eyes as she spoke. When she turned the page, there was a photo of Laura going uh, undergoing an ultrasound, giving a thumbs up. He was stillborn a little over a month before the due date. I had no idea what to say. I felt that saying I'm sorry was too empty, so instead I just remained silent. Placenta abruption, she continued. It's rare, but it happens. She scooted, thank you, Padme. She scooted closer to me on the couch and set the scrapbook on my lap and then grabbed my wrist. She said, Felix, Faye doesn't remember any of this. We have never, ever spoken of it. <laughs> she asked how that could be poss- I asked how that could be possible, given that she was certainly old enough to remember an event like this. Laura explained that the emergency occurred while Greg was out with the girls. The paramedics rushed Laura to the hospital, but the baby could not be saved. When she and Greg finally decided to break the news to their daughters that Christopher had died, Becca was heartbroken, but Faye did not react. It was as if they were telling what they were telling her simply didn't register. Laura would say, do you understand that Christopher is never coming home? And Faye would respond, yes, mommy, with a blank expression. This went on for weeks. Faye would occasionally ask about Christopher as if he'd be visiting soon, and then suddenly she'd not remember anything about him, as if she never existed. He never existed. She began to act out at school and would throw violent tantrums for no reason. A child psychologist warned that Faye was not handling the situation well, so Laura and Greg decided to spend several days up at the cabin with the girls in hopes of separating little Faye's mind from the heavy event. And that's when it happened. Whatever it is that lives in the forest up there, up in the trees, or down in the hole took notice of Faye. It wanted to learn more, but her little brain shut down in terror when it got too close. Laura said after that day, Faye never spoke of Christopher again and seems completely unaware that he even existed. Quite suddenly, Faye's voice erupted from behind us. She was standing in the hallway, perhaps for a long time. 
I slammed shut the scrapbook. The air went out of the room. There was an agonizingly long moment of stillness during which all of us exchanged surprised looks. What's that? She finally asked, pointing at the scrapbook on my lap. I was useless, a deer in the headlights. Laura got up and got between me and Faye, giving her a hug and asking how she was feeling. She said they needed to talk, but Faye pushed her aside and walked over to the couch. Her fiery eyes locked on the scrapbook and didn't blink. She reached out and opened it. The page she revealed had a colorful cutout of the number five. It was one of the final pages of the book. Her jaw trembled and tears instantly welled in her eyes. A look of excruciating pain fell over her face and she began hyperventilating. Laura rounded the couch and tried to assuage her, but Faye slapped her hand away and grabbed the scrapbook and raced off to the bedroom. She cried there for hours and never let us in. I... Hmm. What? I'll keep my... I'll keep my opinions to myself until we finish. Okay. The worst news. I spent the day, rest of the day alone. Faye never emerged from the bedroom and wouldn't speak to me when I knocked. So I played Overwatch to distract myself from the horrible knot of stress in my stomach Same. while texting my best friends, Richard and Jason, regarding the new developments. When I got up for a drink, I heard the bedroom door click. Faye was ready to let me in. She was sitting on the bed with a scrapbook in her lap, and I pushed the door open. I said as gently as I could, You want to talk about it? (laughs) Her face was streaked with hundreds of tears. Her skin was pale, and her eyes were lifeless. Never had I seen her in such a state. I considered calling the paramedics for fear that she might hurt herself or me. She said, I remember now. I stood in the doorway, afraid to make a move. I wasn't sure how Faye would react to the knowledge that I had been conspiring with her mother about their secret past. Mom and I spent all summer getting the nursery set up, she said, dracing a finger down one of the photos. Dad was so excited that he was finally going to have a son, so we did a sports theme. I walked over to the bed and sat down, quiet as a lamb, trying not to trigger another explosion. Faye kept her hands pressed on the scrapbook as though she was feeling for a pulse. The colorful number five rested at the center of the page, laid over various photos. In one, there was a basketball mural painted on the wall with five players, and in another, a toddler onesie with the design of a basketball jersey displayed the number five. Faye started crying again and choked out Christopher was going to be the fifth member of our family. We talked for a long time. Mostly Faye talked. I just quietly watched her face in awe as the deluge of ancient memories flooded her mind. Sometimes she could barely speak, and other times she shook her head and said it was all a dream. Her denial rose and fell in waves, and she grasped at all the faded images in her head and tried to describe them to me with great strain. A tomb had been unearthed, and Faye was excavating it despite the pain it wrought on her, and all I could do was hold her hand through it. That night, I made Nathan's tea again, and we both drank it. Faye fell asleep, and I stayed awake watching Netflix. Just as I was about to shut off the computer, I heard rustling outside, and then the voice of a little girl. She said, It's Faye. I can't see you. Who are you? I walked down the hall and peered out the blinds of the living room. A dark figure walked right past the window, scaring me half to death. It came from our backyard and had no doubt been standing beside our bedroom window. I ran down the hall, grabbed my sweats and shoes and bolted to the door and looked all around the property. And there, across the road, standing under the street lamp, was a man. His body glowed in the pale yellow light, but his face was totally black. He looked nearly seven feet tall, and one of his shoulders was noticeably higher than the other. 
His posture was rigid and reminiscent of the way Faye sleepwalked. I know exactly who it was. I can't explain what prompted me to run after him, but I just wanted to grab this thing by the neck and beat it to death with my bare hands. Perhaps it was because I was so tired my fear instinct hadn't kicked in, or maybe I just had enough. But instead of clawing me to death right there in the street, the figure turned and ran. I chased after him, screaming at the top of my lungs to stay the fuck away from my family and my house. The thing moved very fast, but limped with a freakish gait. My mind envisioned a rail-thin creature made of oily black parts, stretching on the costume of a human and gracelessly lurching around in it. This thing was not a person. Its movements were animalistic, its strides far too long. Its breath wheezed the air like an antique accordion. The stench that dragged behind it singed my nose. It smelled like wildfire. No woods for you to fuck around in out here. I screamed. Lights flicked on in houses all around me as I chased it. It practically galloped and was always 20 feet ahead of me. I chased it down for two blocks. It rounded a few turns and finally bounded over a chain link fence into the community park where there were no lights couldn't see a damn thing, so I had to run all the way around the other side to get it. The only thing I could see was a silhouette. The figure stood there in the empty field, shrouded in the night, gazing up at the moon. The silver outline of its body indicated it was facing away from me. One hand twitched wildly, the other was gnarled up like driftwood. The sight of it out here, so far from help, unnerved me. I approached it still, committing to ending this nightmare tonight one way or another. My courage evaporated about ten feet from the figure. When it issued a growl, I couldn't even describe. It was so deep, I felt it in my ribcage as much as I heard it. I stopped in my tracks, but still managed to say, You will never take her. You will never have Faye. You will leave us alone forever. Go back to that fucking mountain and bury yourself in a mine. It growled again and then gurgled up a wet laugh. What is your name? It asked in my voice. It had been practicing. It was perfect now. May I come in? How do you carry on a conversation with an entity that is basically a demonic parrot? I said much louder than before. You you will leave us alone and go back to the mountain. Faye will never be yours. The imposter emitted the shrieking of an infant. The sound startled me and felt so wrong coming out of the form of such a large man. And then it said in the voice of a child, You go down in the hall. That's where he'll put you. Look at me, you piece of shit. I said. I tried to sound menacing, but in reality, I am a coward. Most people can sense it, so there was little doubt the imposter knew it, too. Then it said something that I did not expect. The sound threw off so threw me off so much that my head spun. Tell me about the child, it said. Nathan's voice wafted gently from its throat. Tell me about the child. Before I could speak, the imposter whirled around and squared off with me. There are no words to express the combination of shock and instant despair that I felt. My knees came straight out from under my body, and I fell onto the wet grass. Staring down at me, boring into me with lidless eyes, was the face of Nathan, my friend, my protector, and the son of a man who had given his life to help me. 
Now his skin was hard and bruised, his scalp flayed, and his eyes tormented. He'd been stretched over a skull that didn't quite fit in a body that rattled with loose, collected bones. A slimy black liquid dripped down the arms. Perhaps it was blood, it was too dark to tell. It spoke a phrase in the language of Nathan's people, the same one Nathan had uttered over the phone last month that made us sick, and I began vomiting profusely as I lay there on the ground. Tell me about the child, it said once more, then smiled. The lips spread and stretched in an expression of malevolent joy, bearing the rotten maw of a long-dead wolf. Nathan's calm voice seeped out of it. Let me speak to the one that followed you home. I gasped for air but couldn't command my body to move. The creature took a few steps toward me and I slammed my eyes shut, preparing to hear, feel those hideous fangs in my neck. Instead, I heard its footsteps approach and then recede in the opposite direction. When I opened my eyes, the imposter had stepped over me and was walking away. It was already in the distance, moving quickly, back towards my neighborhood, toward my house. Followed you home, it repeated, voice echoing in the cold night air. Followed you home, followed you home. Wow. Well, uh, I guess Nathan did go back to the cabin. <laughs> and I guess, uh, I guess it didn't work out too well. Damn. Those, those poor boys. Man. <laughs> those poor boys. Man. Yeah. Oh shit, this next part is the last part. We'll finish her off. Oh fuck. Yeah, there's a lot to be said, and I think we could save it for, uh, for the finale, right? Just yes. just keep your points to the side and let me know. You, you sounded a little disappointed, so we'll get into that. We'll get into it. <laughs> Part 16, the finale. When I was three years old, my parents and I went with some family friends up to a cabin in the mountains. One of the other family's kids was sick with some sort of flu. A few nights in, I came down with it and threw up everywhere over and over. My father was so grossed out that his reaction made me cry a lot. My mom had to kick him out of the room while she took care of me. His horrified expression imprinted in my mind forever and taught me that there is something terribly wrong with being sick. I'm 28 years old now and I spent years of my life being absolutely paranoid about throwing up. Emetophobia controls so much of a person's existence, it makes you afraid to share someone's drink, afraid to eat without washing your hands, afraid to get on roller coasters, afraid to fly in planes, afraid to try new things. But at some point after decades with that phobia, you almost forget what causes you to regard all of those things with fear. The possibility of vomiting becomes subconscious, you don't even think about it anymore. You are just afraid of virtually everything that could cause it. And yet you have no immediate explanation for why you were afraid. You just are. Although that possibility no longer lingers at the precipice of my conscious thoughts, the imposter found it. He went straight to the core of my being and saw what terrifies me the most. He brought it out and used it against me. Repeating Nathan's spiritual purge chant didn't just disable me there in the field, it was a reminder. A reminder of the creature's remarkable power to turn my own flawed humanity upon me. A reminder that it was planning to make me suffer in the most personal of ways. The imposter was designing a personal hell for me and was nearly ready to drag me down into it. 
And so the world collapsed on me. I laid there on the ground, puking my guts out, knowing that my fiancé was asleep and unguarded in bed, while a terrible being strode towards her through the dark. It called out her name, in every voice familiar to her. It said things that would make her happy. It begged for help and mimicked the cries of children. It capitalized on her innate, motherly instincts, on her buried memories, and on the vulnerability of her unconscious state. And all I could do was stagger around and wait for the thumb of death-gripped heart to subside. After a few moments, moonlight poured back into my vision, lighting the way out of the park. My pulse recovered from its frenzy, and the numbness of my limbs faded. The taste in my mouth for once didn't paralyze me. It tore through the streets to get back to my house. I had no plan. A lot of lights were on in the house that lines my streets. Many of my neighbors had likely heard me screaming. I hoped this meant that the imposter would think twice about moving out in the open beneath their watchful gazes. The front door of my house was wide open, and it was pitch dark inside. I shouted for Faye, but couldn't find her. The bed was empty and disheveled, as though she jumped out of it or had been dragged from it. A faint sound caught my attention, the sound of crying and I struggled to determine where it came from. After looking in every room, I realized it was coming from outside. As I stepped outside the sliding glass door in our bedroom that leads to the backyard, the sound grew louder and mixed with shuffling noises. There's a walkway that runs along the side of our house and connects the backyard to the front, and there, in the darkness, was Faye. She was sleepwalking in the most unusual manner I'd ever seen. She stood high up on the balls of her feet as before, but was bent over at the waist. Her hair and arms dangled lifelessly toward the ground, and she shuffled towards the street where I'd first seen the shadowy figure. Faye's neck was craned in such a way that I could see her face swaying just outside her left thigh. Two mournful eyes peered up at me from it, and her lips trembled as she cried. I couldn't tell if she was conscious or not. She mumbled something, but with her cries, I couldn't make out what she was saying. I wrapped my arms around her waist and literally carried her inside, and she clawed at me and landed a tiger palm to my crotch. Just as we careened into the living room, a police car drifted by, its flashlights tracing all across the houses. I gently closed the door and peered out the window. It took me a moment to see it, but the tree in her front yard, a dark form, was crouched on the thickest branch. I yanked the curtains down over the blinds. Faye and I remained awake the rest of the night until dawn. We heard footsteps on our roof and in the attic, but no voices. On two occasions, someone knocked gently on the front door and once on the sliding glass door in the back, but we remained in the living room. We communicated only through pen and paper and prevented each other from nodding off and dreaming about the scrapbook or about Christopher. The last thing she wrote was... Got an idea. Explain tomorrow. At about 6 a.m., my cell phone buzzed on the table. All had been quiet for a few hours, and Faye and I were almost done with the second Lord of the Rings movie when I grabbed the phone. I was surprised to see that it was the ranger from Pike's Peak. His name is Greg, same as Faye's dad, and I refer to him in the title in these posts. We hadn't spoken in a while. I immediately feared that his call was confirmation of the grim likelihood that Nathan was dead. 
He skipped all pleasantries and said, You better sit down. A nauseous fear crept up my throat when he said that, and I shook my head and replied, Just tell me. Just tell me. Static began to form around my peripheral vision, which happens when I'm feeling faint. If it grows and covers my entire field of view, I pass out. The ranger cleared his throat and tried to speak with composure, but I could hear on his voice that he'd been crying. He said, We got a call from one of Nathan's relatives. Said he'd been missing a few days. Thought he went camping with some buddies, but none of them knew where he was. On my routine this morning, I dropped by Faye Folks' cabin. There was a long silence which told me everything I needed to know, but then the ranger said more. We cops, we, we, we got cops everywhere up here now. Whole mountains shut down. They've still got T-Way listed as a missing person, but now they're out hunting for a body like they mean it this time, looking for a murderer too, but I interrupted him and demanded to know why. There was no way I could hide the frantic anxiety any longer. The ranger said, something's happened up here. Up at the cabin, they did something to him. I, I don't know how to tell you. He paused again, struggling to hold back tears. I crumpled to the floor while he spoke. The news singed every nerve in my body. Pain radiated up my stomach, across every limb. My scalp tingled. The static grew in my vision. I need to know, I said. The ranger insisted that the details were unnecessary, but I begged him. What I'm about to tell you is paraphrasing of what the ranger said. Some of this info might change as the Denver coroner performs an official autopsy, but this is what we know. The bathroom window of the cabin had been forced open from the outside, but also the front door was unlocked and slightly open when the ranger arrived. The bedroom door was locked from the inside. It appeared that two people, one of them being Nathan, had been staying inside the cabin for two or three nights. Nathan's satellite phone was found inside, my number being the last one dialed. It was unclear whether Nathan was present at the cabin when we last spoke, and when he promised he wouldn't go back to the cabin. There was a buck knife jammed into one of the walls, and many unusual symbols and words had been carved all over the hallway, leading from the living room to the bedroom. There were words in Hopi, the language Nathan's people speak, and Zuni, a language they don't. The words haven't yet been translated. There was a carving of a large dream catcher on the outside of the bedroom door, and non-lethal amounts of blood spattered on the carpet and lower wall opposite of said door. On the inside of the bedroom door, there were small marks everywhere, as though someone had been pounding very hard on it. The ranger and sheriff speculated that Nathan sat on the floor in the hallway for several hours or perhaps an entire day. Someone was in the bedroom, but the door remained locked. It's possible that they had a long conversation. At no point was the electricity or heat functioning in the cabin because it had been shut off after I was rescued on my second visit. This meant that however long Nathan stayed, he remained in the dark and freezing weather each night. Two pairs of tracks were found leaving the cabin, one from the bedroom window, the other from the front door. Heading into the forest out back, the tracks joined together, indicating that two people walked side by side into the woods. Nathan's body was found by the ranger's dogs approximately a quarter mile in, 
buried upside down with his legs erupting from the soil at the knee. Upon exhumation, it was discovered that Nason's face and scalp had been flayed and mutilated. There were deep lacerations in his back that appeared to be from claws and carvings on his arms that looked self-inflicted. The unofficial cause of death, however, was suffocation. He had been buried alive. And everything in the cellar was gone. It was completely empty. I have never come so close to ending my own life. The guilt and horror I felt at hearing the ranger's words are still ineffable, so I won't bother trying to document them. Somehow I convinced myself that there would be a time for grieving in the future and even for acts of penance, but right now I needed to focus on Faye after all. She might end up just like Nathan and Tiway if we didn't figure out what to do. A few days passed with no strange activity beyond a voice here and there. I was hesitant to let Faye sleep for fear that she would dream of her little brother and give the imposter what it sought, but she explained to me her idea, a plan to get rid of the creature once and for all. And for the first times in months, I actually felt a glimmer of hope. We kept drinking Nathan's tea after concluding that it was doing no discernible harm, and Faye spent the day furiously drawing, journaling, and texting with her mom and sister. I called Angela, the Shoshone woman, and requested that she come visit us with the hypnotist friend she was speaking of Faye again, and to bless our new house. I also made a large donation I could afford to Tiwa and Nathan's community to help cover the cost of their funeral ceremonies. In my spare time in the evenings, I wrote a letter for both of them, and I intend to read it at their place of burial someday. Each night, Faye went to bed crying. She had definitely entered some kind of mourning process, long delayed by years of denial, and I now bore witness to the lifelong impact of her loss. Never have I seen a human in so much pain. But Faye assured me that she would be alright and that I should have faith in her. I silently obliged, because I trust her more than anyone in the world. She knows herself, and I put my faith in that. One night, I snuck into the bedroom and retrieved Faye's drawings. She had produced several pictures of her own nightmares and memories from her childhood, and of a young man that looked like her. I believe he's Christopher, or at least how Faye imagines he might look had he survived and grown up. She wrote all kinds of things around the drawings, mostly detailed descriptions of images, sometimes stories from when she was young, and wrote her brother's name dozens of times. She even drew a family portrait that included herself at age five, holding a smiling baby. On the fifth night after the incident in the park, Angela and her hypnotist friend arrived. As I've mentioned before, I haven't given the hypnotist names because I don't want you to have to keep track of too many people. But Faye informed our guests of what she believed we could do to get rid of the entity for good. I went outside and set the drawings under the tree in our front yard where I'd last seen the shadowy figure. Then we got Faye comfortable and set her up on the couch. Fortunately for us, Faye has the remarkable ability of being able to fall asleep at any time, any place, so all we had to do was dim the lights in the house. I made a pasta dish. <laughs> oh, we can breathe for a second because he said something I find funny. Lots of pasta. Also, realistic. 
There's nothing that'll put you in a coma quicker than a giant dish of Alfredo pie. Yes, some carbs. <laughs> I made a pasta dish for everyone, and within a half hour, she was out cold. <laughs> some yeah, good fucking right. pasta. This time, she didn't drink Nathan's tea. For a long time, Angela, the hypnotist, and I sat at the kitchen table over coffee and ice cream. We kept our voices low and discussed all the recent events related to the cabin. Waiting for the imposter to show up, the hypnotist was especially interested in dream catchers and wanted to know who made them. I told her I didn't have any idea and that at first I thought the entity itself created them. And after speaking with the users on No Sleep, you're more insightful than I am, I started to believe that someone had summoned or was controlling the entity with the original dream catcher. And when I broke it, I realized it was protecting me. She said, do you think it's possible one of her family members created it? Or the ranger? Do you trust him? Many people have speculated that Tiwa and Nathan were not honest with me, or not who they say they were, but I honestly hadn't considered that the ranger himself could be behind all this. I conceded that it was possible. Faye spoke a few times in her sleep. She laughed and said things like, Do you need help with that? And... What the hell are you doing? <laughs> After she said the name of her boss, I realized she was dreaming about work. We waited until about midnight, but by then, no activity had occurred and no sounds were coming from outside. Angela woke Faye up and said we need to take a more direct approach. The two women propped Faye up hospital bed style and began to hum a beautiful song. Angela intermittently spoke in her native tongue and traced lines with her fingers across Faye's forehead. The hypnotist occasionally raised her hands in the air and then touched Faye's shoulders. After several minutes, my fiancé went limp. Her head slumped back on the couch and her arm dangled to the floor. Finally, she opened her eyes, which were now rolled back in her head and she began breathing rhythmically. The hypnotist said, Who are you? She replied simply, Faye. Are you alone? I am with you. Who else is here? Angela, Felix, Erica. Her boss. The hypnotist corrected Faye. She said, Erica isn't here. It's just us four. Faye looked puzzled for a moment and then said, Okay. Angela joined the conversation and touched Faye's arms. She asked, The one who follows you, the one who calls out in the night, where is he now? Is he here? Faye's head craned from side to side like she was emptying water from her ears and then said, No. Where is he? Faye sat motionless for what felt like a whole minute and then finally said, Across the dark. The hypnotist then said, Faye, can you call out to him? Can you ask him to come here? And she remained silent. The hypnotist asked again. Faye said forcefully, No. Angela said, Honey, we can't get rid of him unless you bring him here. And Faye began to whimper. Her mouth trembled. And then she uttered in the voice of a small child. Please, no. Goosebumps rippled across my arms as I sat at the table watching. Angela implored and Faye began to cry. You have to call out to him, the hypnotist repeated. Tell him where you are. Faye slowly rocked her head back and forth and tried to reach up into the air to protect herself, but the weight of her hypnotic state kept her in place. Suddenly, her body went stiff, 
and her eyes rolled forward. They landed squarely on me, then looked over my shoulder and focused on something a thousand miles behind me. Her mouth opened slightly and a gurgling sound came up from her throat. She said in a wet and masculine tone, Watch you, watch you. Faye leaped off the couch and shuddered as though she was trying to throw something off her back. Her body stayed rigid and she turned and faced away from us. Every joint in her limbs popped with sickening cracks. She bent her head back and stared up at the place where the ceiling met the wall in front of her, then tightly balled her fists. She said again, Watch you, watch you, watch you. The hypnotist and Angela were staring now, gathering around Faye to prevent her from hurting herself or dashing off into the night. I played safety a few feet away, trying to be ready for anything. The hypnotist said, Faye, tell us where he is. She breathed hard through gritted teeth and then forced out the word. Bedroom. We all turned and looked behind us down the dark hall. The hypnotist wrapped her hand around Faye's forehead from behind and started whispering in her ear. I turned and quietly moved down the hall toward the bedroom, and as I approached it, I could hear the sliding glass door to the yard open. When I stepped into the bedroom, a cold breeze was blowing into it. The glass door on the opposite wall was wide open. I looked around to make sure I wasn't about to get ambushed and then approached the door. The backyard light has a motion sensor that automatically activates when something moves. It was off, and the yard was dark. However, at the far end of the yard, I could make out the shape of a man. The same figure I had seen walking earlier, the one I'd made the dire mistake of chasing after. This time the figure was even larger than before. It appeared to stand at roughly seven feet tall. It faced away as always, and its head was cocked towards the moon. Its hands lay pressed against its sides, fists balled tightly, clutching many pieces of paper. Faye's drawings. It growled, Wole my, wole my. I slid the door shut as fast as I could and locked it, and then raced back to the living room. Faye was now sitting on the couch, head still craned up towards the ceiling with Angela and the hypnotist speaking to her. They implored her to wake up, but it seemed as though she was struggling to return. Outside, a voice howled. It sounded like a little girl crying out to her mother. Another voice erupted, Loras, shouting, Greg, we need to take her to the hospital. Faye began to convulse, so the two women clutched her tightly and begged her to wake up. An infant began to shriek in the yard, and then it slowly moved down the side of the house to the front door. There was a loud, slow knock, followed by more voices. The knock repeated over and over, and Becca's voice called out from behind the door, Faye, where are you? Help me, please help. At last, Faye sucked in a huge breath and leaned back out on the couch. Her head returned to normal position, and she stood up, frantically trying to collect herself. The pounding on the door grew louder, and the voices began to overlap, as though several people were standing in the front of our house, crying out in the night. She said breathlessly, It's here. He's here. And it looked at me. In Faye's eyes, I saw uncertainty and terror, mirrors of my own state. But then a look of conviction fell over her face. The fear seemed to evaporate right off of it. A man began to cry just outside the door. It said in Greg's voice, He was my child too, Laura. My son. Do you think a weekend in the goddamn mountains would make me forget? Faye gasped. 
His words were so perfectly clear that I nearly believed he was on the other side of the door. Don't you fucking dare, Laura's voice shouted. Just let her forget, let her forget. This doesn't have to burden her too. Faye burst into tears and wobbled to the door. She rested her face against it and reached for the knob. The shrieks of a baby echoed through the house, followed by a little girl saying, What's your name? I can't see you. It's Faye. Faye. I watched my fiancé collapse to the floor in despair. Angela and the hypnotist took a step forward, but Faye put her hand in the air to halt them. She sat on the ground, leaned her back against the door, and brushed the strawberry locks out of her face. The door knocked again. My own voice followed it, saying, May I come in? It's freezing out here. Another storm's coming tonight. I have to tell you something. Faye said, gently knocking on the door. I know what you really want. The voices fell silent, all at once, and only an uneven breathing remained. I had a baby brother. She said. His name was Christopher. He was number five. The breathing cut out. Faye knocked on the door again after a minute. Something knocked back. I remember now. She continued. I couldn't remember for years. Or I guess I just didn't want to. It's easier for me to just pretend things never happened. Some kid makes kids make things exist. Friends, monsters, places. But I made Christopher not exist. That way I didn't have to lose him. His death was just make-believe. A long, slow scratching noise resounded through the door. The thing outside was dragging a claw across the wood like it was drawing a picture. Faye put her palm on the door, feeling the weak vibrations of the scratching. For a long time, the number was all I could remember. I knew it meant something more, but every time I thought about it, my whole body would hurt. I'd feel sick, and then I'd just fall asleep. Or if I was dreaming, I'd just wake up. I always knew it meant something more. The doorknob rattled, and a wet, clunking sound emitted from it. The imposter was gnawing on it from the other side. The clatter of a hundred jagged teeth rose in vile symphony across our living room. He was stillborn. Do you know what that is? He died inside my mom. All this time I've avoided burying Christopher, but you finally helped me realize why it's time I laid him to rest. Faye, come hold him, Becca's voice called out. I don't get it. He falls asleep so fast when you've got him. You want her to be your new mommy, Caleb? The scratching noises persisted. Faye wiped tears out of her eyes and took a deep breath. Now you know everything. I wanted you to know. A chorus of voices rang out in the night. An infant screamed, a toddler cried, Greg and Laura and Becca and Tiway and Nathan and the ranger all spoke at once. Decades of pain washed through the work the door. Words of anguish and sorrowful cries drowned out all other sounds in the room. Angela, the hypnotist, and I exchanged terrified glances, but Faye remained motionless at the door, staring up into my eyes. She didn't blink. The knocking on the door swelled to violent pounding. The entity used every possible trick it could. It tried to hit her right where the wounds were fresh and tried to tear open the oldest scars, but Faye never budged. She held her ground emotionally and never took her eyes off me. 
they were filled with a knowing calm, as if to say, enough. When the imposter got no response, it stopped from the front door to the nearby window. It towered over us and blocked out the moonlight that lit up the drapes. A huge shadow fell across Faye as she sat there, unmoved. Wole my, wole my, it growled. Faye's lips quivered, but she said nothing. A titanic scream erupted from the creature, and it slapped the glass with an open hand. The sound shook our home and struck a lightning bolt of terror in the pit of my stomach, but Faye did not react. She didn't even flinch. Then the entity said something I did not expect. Instead of assuming the voice of someone we knew, it spoke in several I did not recognize. It spoke only one labored sentence, but each word was uttered with a different tongue. I walked a thousand years across the dark to find you. A small part of me wanted to run away screaming, but I was so afraid my legs wouldn't even move. The finality, the longing of what it said, was incomprehensibly dreary. I totally lost my nerve. That moment, another thing even less expected happened. The shadow receded from the window, coloring Faye's face silver with the dim kiss of moonlight. Sullen footsteps lurched across our yard and vanished into the backdrop of cricket songs. After a while, we were alone. All three of us looked down at Faye, a relieved smile spread across her face. She wasn't crying anymore. It's been several days since the imposter left. It returned only once, only to sing the morose lullaby. Soul mia do, I am a naked soul mia do. Faye slept under through. Yeah, so whoop, that was uh, that was dyslexia, what just happened there. It'd be like that. Faye <laughs> slept through it entirely. I didn't even mention it to her. My fiance has been sleeping well since that night. She hasn't talked all, and certainly hasn't sleepwalked. In fact, she hasn't even really been tossing and turning like she normally does. It's as if a dreadful weight was lifted from her shoulders. During the days, she cries, she cuddles with me and talks about her childhood. She Skypes with her mom and her sister. They cry too. I've shed many tears with her and for her loss, but I understand now what she did. Faye never dreamed of Christopher, only of the number five. As a child, she repressed the memory and the pain of his death and thus forgot about him. The number became the lockbox in which he was hidden. It was the coffin she buried him in, and she buried him so deep within herself she couldn't even remember him in her nightmares. That is why the entity never fully understood what she was hiding, and that is why it never gained full access to her. Faye's lifelong sleep disturbances were her mind's attempt at keeping that welling pain repressed, but by talking in her sleep she invited dark attention to herself. If you speak long enough into the void, someone is bound to start listening. Someone or something heard Faye's pain and saw it as a weakness. It saw those cracks in her heart as a passage into her soul, and so it chose her. The imposter became transfixed with my fiancé, not because she was an easy target, but because she was a monolithic puzzle box of torment, a challenge, a worthy opponent. 
I remarked early on in these stories that one of the things I love most about Faye is her intelligence. She has an artistic creativity that allows her to see things in ways I don't. She realized that the imposter knew it could tug on her puppet strings by delving into the darkest parts of her mind. In all those hidden places, there were weapons to use against her, to weaken her, to wear her down, but instead of burying her secrets deeper, she unearthed them and brought them into the light. By moving Christopher and the number that represented him from her subconscious into her waking thoughts, Faye unleashed a tidal wave of forgotten pain upon herself. But also, she took away the imposter's power over her. She cut off her own puppet strings, and now there was nothing left for the creature to grab onto. So it left. I've also shed tears for my dear friends Tiwa and Nathan. Perhaps I can never convey the warmth of their personalities and the sincerity of their hearts. But I trusted them entirely and do not believe they had anything to do with the foul thing that stalked my fiancé for all these years. Their deaths are mortal wounds on my heart, and I will always carry the agony of their loss. I want it to hurt as a permanent reminder. They have given so much to me and asked nothing in return, only that I preserve the goodness of their people in my memory. By writing about their altruism and sacrifices, I'm trying to fulfill that promise. May their spirits live on in the sacred land they protected. We may never know for sure who built the Dreamcatcher at the cabin, or the one in the trees outside my old home. Right now, I believe that they were built by different people who live on Pike's Peak. Some of them want to protect fools like me who ventured to that mountain without understanding its significance to the Indians living there. Others perhaps wish to harm them. Maybe even Angela herself built one for us. Maybe you can't tell the person they're designed to protect or else it doesn't work. Faye's ring has also been the topic of heated debate whether or not it is cursed, what should be done with it, etc. For now, my fiancé does not wish to part with it, but she might consider it if anything happens again. It is still a precious family heirloom and the symbol of my devotion, whatever taint it may carry. I guess whatever I mean is, we still don't have all the answers, and the unfortunate thing is that we may never. The true nature of the entity and a full explanation of what happened to us might remain a mystery. But in time, I believe I will come to understand more about this terrible ordeal. We plan to head back to Colorado in a few weeks to spend time with Faye's parents, to pay our deepest respects to Tiwa and Nathan's community, and to witness the bulldozing of the cabin. Whatever secrets it still hides, let them be buried deep beneath the rubble and the snow of decades to come. Hmm. <laughs> Was that a pleasant... Hmm? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh man, what a wild ride! <laughs> well, I want to. I want to get into why you sound so disappointed. What? What? Sorry. I want to get into why you sound so disappointed. I just like. I don't know, man. I'm like. I'm underwhelmed. Why? I like. I I don't know. I like. I mean, I definitely get like the pain of losing, like you know, a stillborn. Um, you know, bro. I don't know. Like maybe maybe I'm just really cold and unfeeling, but like 
I don't know. Like, I had no people who had, like, who that happened to. You know? Like, uh, I had, like, like one of my best friends actually lost a uh, potential younger sibling. Yeah. Um, and she was older. She was, like, you know, well, she wasn't that old. But I have um, a friend who it was, was her. It, it, she was in junior high when she lost what would have been, like, a uh, an, an infant. So it was like there yeah, was like a twelve year difference in a really big family. I think that it was the same way because I think that she would have been like twelve or thirteen. I think maybe maybe thirteen or fourteen because there's her and then she had two younger brothers, um, one of whom would have only been like three or four at the time, and then the other who I think would have been like, uh, like nine or ten, maybe eleven. And, like, I don't know, it just wasn't, like, it was painful, you know, but it wasn't, like, repress all of your memories and, like, kill, and, like, die, you know, painful. <laughs> like, you, it was, like, that's... But, but as a kid, pretty, but as a yeah, kid, and, and, I, and I, and I relate to this only, only for this example in my head, I rationalized it with one thing in my head, and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. When I was, I'm going to say five, maybe even younger. It's mm-hmm. like one of the oldest memories I have. I went to my first funeral. It was mm-hmm. my, uh, my great aunt. Um, mm-hmm. The memories I have of her are frightening. She was not a very um, happy or lovely person to be around. Um, it was my, uh, grandmother's mom. I don't know. So she's my great grandma, I suppose. Uh, she scared me a little bit. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Um, (laughs) it was an open casket funeral and I, I could, I could not comprehend what was going on. And my parents like, they told me not to look. I still looked, you know, like you still, yeah, yeah, you catch you, your glimpses, you, you catch your glimpses. Like they, they weren't going to put their hands over my eyes and I wasn't going to, you know, do, do that either. Like I, I was being held, I think. Um, but it, it sticks in my mind almost like a dream. And um, that was probably my first like confrontation with death. And I, I know I was too young to talk about it. And if I were to bring it up with my dad or my mom, I'm sure they would say something along the lines of, yeah, we tried to explain it to you, but fuck you were five. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and in my head, that's all of a rationalization I need. Um, because I, I don't, I mean, like, did I repress that for, for, you know, 20 fucking years before I talked about it again? (laughs) No. No. But it's still the first time I I think I've said that out loud in, like, probably my entire life. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, I don't think I've ever talked about that to, like, anyone. So it's like, I, I get where the story is coming from when it claims something like that. But I'm also thinking Mm -hmm. like, 
of my friend. Like, as you mentioned, like you, you know, someone who had actually been through something like this and it's not something that they're not going to talk about. Like with my friend, when I, when I really got to know her, it was actually a subject of, of many conversations. Mm -hmm. Cause she would, she would just explain that like uh, the genealogy in her family is just a little fucked up. Mm hmm. Yeah, with uh, with my friend, actually, we didn't talk about that until very recently. And we've been friends for about a decade now, I think. Yeah, I've, I've um, known this person for and... probably 14 years. So it was yeah. it was a conversation I had when I was like in high school. We we just talked about it and like it wasn't and that's not to say that it didn't, you know, affect them because it did. It was like painful. And I know that losing a child, especially that close, because he was like, what, a month It was like a month away from the due date or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like, especially so close when you've like, you know, built the nursery and you've named them and like, you're like, like, I totally get that. That shit's excruciating. But I definitely like, and I definitely get how that could be like a source of really like, like a really, really jarring source of pain for a five-year-old, especially. Because I mean, like, I very distinctly remember, like, I don't remember why. I, like, came to this conclusion, but I remember having, like, what I now realize, and I only realized after, like, talking about it in therapy, was, like, my very first anxiety attack. Oh. (laughs) I was, like, six, and I, like, you know, it just hit me that, like, death is a thing. Like, (laughs) and I just, like, panicked, and I, like, went out, and I was just, like, desperate for my parents to, like, explain it away, and then they can't, because, you know, it's a thing. (laughs) And it does, like, it stays with you. Like, I totally get that. It's, I guess that it's the level of repression that I, like, that, like, kind of, like, that seems a little, like, Yeah, no, the level of repression is tough. The level of repression is almost what makes it, it, it's almost what makes it hardest to believe in the story. Because, you know, I can relate to that, too. When I remember being as little as, like, eight, nine and, you know, being in mm-hmm. bed and my brother is, you know, we, we shared a bedroom. He's fast asleep in the bed next to me and I'm staying up into the wee hours of the morning because I haven't been able to sleep because I, I constantly think that if I close my eyes, you know, I'm going to die and, I, and they won't open back yeah, up. Just... And yep. <laughs> I I sit there and, and instead of being scared, I mean, I was definitely scared, but I wasn't like petrified, you know, unable to move. I I had a inquisitive approach to it like i would wonder why and when and how and what it's gonna be like and as a kid you can't answer any of those fucking questions so it's very confusing and frightening and i think i think trauma is Weird. I think trauma hits everyone differently. And if, if one thing kept me, and I will say satisfied with the conclusion of this story, um, it's the simple fact that trauma can't be defined. Yes. And one one thing that I do really like uh-huh. is that the like 
the only reason this story ended well is because an adult took charge of her own healing and yeah. then you know like when like had taking an active part in like healing and emotionally recovering from your trauma is like the only thing that saved them. that is a and big I thing really in, in ap- stories i appreciate too. that yeah, yeah well a big thing in in ghosts in hauntings um like in in conjurings you know like um it, it's a very it's a very personal thing to be haunted and mm-hmm. a lot of it has to deal with just emotion and you know they they say that the spirits that remain um the whole uh unfinished business aspect of mm-hmm. it um it's emotionally driven so yes. what beats emotion well clearly telling someone to go away will not beat emotion um <laughs> fighting it will not beat emotion i think emotion beats emotion or at least listening and conscientiously understanding mm-hmm. and those are the fucking hardest things to do when you're being haunted like a motherfucker you know mm-hmm. like and, it's, and you know and even like haunting aside like confronting your own emotional trauma and shortcomings and like you it's know not easy. figuring out yeah how to deal with it and how to like you know exist as a person is so hard i've been dealing with it for the last 15 years of my life exactly (laughs) exactly same and i can't imagine that having an oily skin wearing demon breathing down your neck the whole time is like helpful (laughs) i i read a, a meme recently about disney plus um it it said simply It is not that we love Disney Plus, Disney, or Disney products, or merchandise, or movies. It is simply the fact that we have not been happy as a generation since we were 11. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but but let, me, let me change topic pretty closely to... Am I am I wrong for feeling a little bit of sympathy for this for this creature at the end? Yeah, no, that last line, the whole fucking like walking a thousand years across the dark to find someone like whew, oof. That was tough. Big oof. Yeah. Right, big oof. That was like a oof like... moment. <laughs> I know, it's like I always wonder, like, I was actually thinking about this today on my walk home because it was like, you know, it was like kind of gloomy and cold and everything was just very gray out. And the streets were really empty, too, I guess because it's probably fucking frigid. But I was like, I was just chilling there and I started being like, you know, scaring myself. I was like, yeah, you know, evil omens, evil weather, evil things. And then I just kind of like was thinking about it and I was like, does that exist? And if it does, why? Like, the it's, like, even the concept of, like, you know, the Christian devil and things yeah. like that. It's, like, like, is there, are there, like, beings in the universe that are just evil and that are here to do evil things evilly? 
you know right and or it's the nature versus nurture like uh this is a pathology thing with uh with human mind and human concept it's like well is evil born or do people get eviled yeah exactly and then if there are these like you know i mean regardless of your religious belief i think almost every religious belief has some kind of like whether it's like an evil or a dark or even just like in i guess not every single one because for some of them it's just either good or absence of good which it doesn't necessarily mean evil but um you know most of them have some kind of like you know darkness yeah as like uh the other side of the coin like to i link that to almost like a primal or bestial type of survival instinct at times like a lord of the flies thing like like Mm -hmm. yes any person see like i would argue this entire thing by saying i think everyone is born good i think Mm -hmm. the way you were raised the way you think uh the way you communicate you know all of these um all these methods of thought um they they impact you and your scale Mm -hmm. starts to get tipped in various directions and venn diagrams of different overlapping thoughts and emotions and i think um it is very much a nurture thing um for me because even um you know uh like there's a difference between manson and and Dahmer. you know manson had a hard life no one liked him his mom constantly maybe even tried to kill him a couple times mm-hmm. um and he just grew up and did what he did you know it, it's almost yeah. like same old same old Dahmer had a great life he had loving parents who got him anything he wanted they just tried to help him out mm-hmm. but Dahmer just you know he Ate passively <laughs> floated into a questionable territory of how to express himself and will i will i blame that on the parents yes because i think they tried to say okay son don't be a freak you know like i, yeah. I think there was a lot of that don't be weird you know they didn't channel it they didn't tell him mm-hmm. that it's okay to be weird as long as you Uh, have your checks and balances you know um if the kid was interested in taxidermy then you take him to go meet a taxidermist and you find a way to channel that feeling you know you don't you don't repress it make him hide it and make it feel like it's something wrong because then Mm -hmm. wrong becomes wronger and wrong becomes wrongest and then someone ends up getting their brain sucked out so you know, the the good and evil thing, I think, taps into the story because I think inherently um, every soul, like, is clean, is nice, is good. I just think they get tainted, um, like much of the story kind of talks about. Hmm. It's just like, you know, and even... That's, I definitely, I'm, I'm very interested in that, actually. I think I'm going to have to keep that, I'm going to, like, take that and, like, put it, uh, put it up somewhere so I can look at it and think about it for a while. But, the story um, or what I just said? 
both. Both. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I do I do a lot of listening to, to serial killer podcasts. I do a lot of listening yeah, yeah. about um, uh, th- theories, theoretical nature versus nurture. Like, I've, took a, I've taken a lot of, like, behavioral... Uh, like I read a lot of psychological books um, mm-hmm. that that help get into the mind. I'm also totally open to have discussions about any of it. So I've learned a lot from a lot of people who do know, like my uncle, who is a psychiatrist, you know, like the, the conversations mm-hmm. we have about the duality of logic and, um, you know, self-destruction and all that shit. Um, the only other thing I kind of wanted to, to just push out there both for you and for the audience um there's an anime it's brand new um and it's one of the best things i've ever watched in my life um it's called demon slayer Mm -hmm. it is phenomenal um i will i will sell it very quickly in this world demons exist um and instead of having okay. exorcists, there are samurais that go around and kill them. It's just hunter and hunted, you know? If someone mm. is fucked up enough to become a demon, then they're just evil, and that's that. We cut their heads off with our sacred blades, and, and, and it's done. Um, boy, growing up in beautiful, loving family, loses father, becomes man of the house, and... Uh, one day leaves to go into town to help with food and to come back. Uh, a storm stops him from coming back. He spends the night at a hermit's place in the woods, comes back the next morning. His entire family is gutted um, and uh, slain by demons. He finds Damn. his sister has been bitten slash infected and not killed. Um, his younger sister. She is now a demon for all intents and purposes. She will not age. It's very hard to kill her. She can go into like mm-hmm. a demonic rage. Um, cool. But his connection to her and his love for her and his inability to kill her brings something out of her and it makes her demon kind of back down. And he's able to get through to her. And so the show becomes about him on an adventure as a demon slayer to prove to the world that there are demons that exist that aren't evil and Hmm. it humanizes them and Mm -hmm. every villain he fights from that point forward he makes an emotional connection with it's almost like he can see snapshots into their past as he kills them and grants them, you know, like slumber, like peace, essentially, mm-hmm. you get to see their entire like backstory for just like a minute while they're dying about how they used to be good people and how mm-hmm. something twisted them. And through an unfortunate circumstance, they became a demon. And I, it's super impactful and it's beautiful and the show isn't it's not just all action and flashy swords and shit i mean it is that but it well we like swords but it is and the sword work is beautiful when they they all harness different elements all the different samurai people there's like a guild of uh demon hunters essentially and um 
the main character, he learns the water blade, which is another form that a lot of people know. So when he swings his sword around, it looks like those old Japanese watercolor paintings. And uh, it just kind of flows out of wherever he waves the sword. And it's just beautiful to watch. I would say after this, go and watch a trailer because it is it is beautiful. Even if you don't like anime, okay. it's beautiful. No, I like, but, I have mixed feel. I used to like a lot of anime and then I got yeah. older and I was like, and I got tired of it's, it. <laughs> it's a shonen, so it's stereotypical. Okay. But it's, but Thank it's beautiful. Thank you for preparing me. And as long I can, I'll, I'll see. I can probably at least watch the trailer. No, just watch the I intro. Love... Literally, just watch the intro Even... theme song. It it'll show you Even everything you need to know, it. and it'll introduce all the characters. And um, you know, it's a it's a good intro. It's also a banger of a song. So um, nice. I just wanted to say, like, when you put that perspective into like something like this, it makes that creature at the end very sympathetic. Mm. Because at one point, it was alive, it was a person, Mm -hmm. it had loves, it had cares, it had families, it had interests, it had hobbies, you know, and it was ripped away from its body, flung into Mm -hmm. darkness for thousands of years, and came back a monster. See, and that's, that's like my question, right? Yeah. Because I, like, there's, you know, the insinuation that it could be... A person you know or was once a person yeah which i'm down for i'm totally down for that and in that case it makes a much more sympathetic i think that's what it's saying but then there's also the insinuation like that uh nathan talked about for a while and even uh angela like both of the people that it was just like you know it's like similar to like you know a god basically where it's just older than time well yeah it's It's so 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 skinwalkers so when she says older than skinwalkers it's because skinwalkers still have a lifespan. Skinwalkers are just mm-hmm. um, either cursed or uh, guided Native American peoples that um, they're either kicked out of their tribe and they lose all sense of self and worth and they choose only to turn to the skinwalker to seek revenge. Or you... Yeah. And they kind of lose their I'm identity like- when they do that. There, there's gotcha. there's that's the bad version the good version is the guy who leaves town to be the lone protector of the town to make sure nothing bad ever happens to it ever again but he still loses his identity in order to to get out of the town and to stay on the outskirts and to try and protect that way also usually stereotyped as like a lone a very large wolf like a lone wolf that kind of stalks the outskirts of the town to make sure nothing bad ever comes near it but never goes into town itself to fuck with anyone kind of walks like a human mm-hmm. sometimes also known to talk yeah yeah i just like i wonder like if there is this insinuation that there could be such like a creature that has exist that just you know existed with the existence of you know whatever this realm is to it and then like you know if that is the case what is like why you know what i mean (sighs) like it makes more sense to me for it to have been a person that has become twisted it makes like the it's harder for me to wrap my mind around something evil that just exists for the well no it's not it's not i think nathan explained it in your in your part he said that when when you get taken by one of these things you 
you're killed, but you're not just killed. You're spiritually killed. Your spirit is dragged into mm-hmm. a great darkness, never to get yeah. out and find the light. So when you're lost, when you're lost for all eternity and you can't find out, you, you kind of lose your mind. You, you lose your shit. Mm-hmm. And let's just say that, you know, almost like a haunt, like a haunting, you start to gain almost like a physical presence with how negative your energy has become, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you, you haunt that area where you were killed, your negative thoughts and negative experiences and what brought you to that darkness just continue to emanate until you're not you anymore. You're just this hateful void of humanity that seeks to be back in the light, that seeks to be back like a human. And, and instead your, your only time uh, can be spent with a fresh kill in their body um, mm-hmm. before you rip out of it, essentially. And in that time, you're trying to just prolong the next body you can steal. You know, you're, you're prepping your next body. You're trying to haunt the next thing you can so that you can move forward and continue hopping from body to body, you know, uh, trying to stay warm, trying to stay out of the darkness. And I think that makes the spirit a little bit more... Um, sympathetic but it it makes like the fate for Tiway and Nathan like so much fucking worse you know it does although they did say that there is like a difference between like you know when it murders the shit out of someone and when it like totally steals the soul soul into the void yeah so it sounds it sounds like Tiway and Nathan are like okay spirit wise but like body wise like no (laughs) so so i kind of linked it i said like there's a difference in between being like yeah like fucked beyond all compare you know like your spirit being taken and all that shit i think that's what they were trying to do to Faye. Faye. yes but what happened to nathan was more like oh you're just a tool i'm just using your body murder just straight up like, yeah i want your voice i need him. your voice i need your mind i need your body yeah exactly. Um, and i think nathan Slash nathan got the same hungry. thing because he went looking for either revenge or answers or what have you and um and he and he hopefully got what he was looking for you know i mean the, it's unfortunate he had to die but um <sighs> I'm like I'm salty about no, that. No, I'm, I'm salty about lie. it too. It's it's sad because I'm they like, were they were good people. They were good, and I'm also just kind of like, bro, like <laughs> it's just They're like a story about a couple of dumbass white people going up to a Native American holy site that they know nothing about, fucking with some shit, and then getting two natives killed, and then they're fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's also to the to the extent where it's like I almost wish that the that the presence of the natives was felt earlier. Like, um, like th- if if they had thrown in one weird interaction before they got to the cabin, like well before the story started, like man, we were on the way up to the cabin and when we stopped at the store owned by this, uh, this family of native Americans, they gave us a weird look when we told them where we were going, you know, like that, that yeah. might've helped a little bit, but man, they're just, they're just bystanders to a, to a shitty mm-hmm. situation. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. But that shows how well they I were written, like, you know? That shows how much we care about them as characters because, uh, you know, we liked them more than 
the narrator and, and his bitch. <laughs> I just like, yeah, I, I'm not mad that it was a happy ending. I don't feel. I'm not I mean, either. Was, you know, you know, there's there's a not, there's a point yeah. where it makes sense, and like I said, like the 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 honor they give to Tway and Nathan, um, the impact mm. is still felt. So like, I'm still. I'm also glad. <laughs> I'm also glad he specified that he donated to their community because, like, you're damn right, you fucking asshole. Like, and you had best, you had best be sending them fucking reparations with half your paycheck for the rest of your life after what they did. Name your child Nathan, you sick fuck. You had better Nathan T. Way, white person, last name. I uh, there's some things though that uh that Faye did. Slash that the entity had Faye do that I'm a little, still a little confused about. Like, why did she run out and, like, yank, like, why the baby thing? You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't, even with the context of her, like, stillborn baby brother, it doesn't really make much sense for her to try and, like, you know, give the entity the baby. Yeah. That I'm, like. I think the entity was telling. I think the entity, well, the entity kept trying to say, tell me about the child, right? So. Yeah, there was yeah, yeah. something in Faye's mind that had her gravitating to when she was five. So it's just like five, child, five, child, like this child, mm-hmm. you know, and like Caleb was the only one there. So it's like, no, like the spirit didn't want that, you know? Yeah. And that might be why nothing happened to him, too, because maybe, maybe it, it had nothing to do with the... it. Yeah, it could be the entity kind of like you know casting around for something, right? And he like pulled the baby, and he you're was not like, gonna, no, I don't want yeah, that. you're not gonna win all the time <laughs> when you ask random questions from your you know your sleep possessy, um, your quarry. It's like <laughs> yes. it, it said it's based off your dreams, right? So she was dreaming about her sister, and she was dreaming about the baby, and she was dreaming you about being jealous, you know, being jealous of not being a mom, you know, um, oh, the. Yeah, yeah. The entity probably, like, went with that and then said, nah, that's not going to help for what I need. Mm-hmm. That's true. I'm, like, I'm also thinking about, uh, like, <laughs> it kind of makes me feel relieved that it can only do dreams because my dreams are either nightmares or they don't make any sense. Yeah, my sense. dreams like, are stupid. I never dream. I never dream about real life ever. Do you, so you like, want to know okay, what I, I mean, do? You want to know what I dreamed about last night? I, I actually remember it. What did you dream about last night? I built a house in a Walmart, and okay, <laughs> and I would simply leave the house to get things around the Walmart and come back, and like I had people okay. come and visit me. And they would be like, how's the Walmart going? And I'm like, it's going good. And then I woke up. (laughs) Like, it didn't make any sense. I think it was just really convenient and I was comfortable with that. Because if you think about it, you could absolutely build a house in Walmart with all the stuff in Walmart. (laughs) I just like... (laughs) I mean, retirement plan. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I I remember my dream last night, too. Do you want to know what it yeah, was? Yeah, tell me. I dreamed that something happened to my cat, and I had to amputate half her tail with my bare hands. No. 
yep and that's the kind of dreams that i have like the entity would look at you and be like fuck who dreams about that and like walks away (laughs) yeah i'll tell you what like i i remember sitting down with my therapist and being like well i have trouble sleeping and she's like okay like insomnia and i'm like yes and she's like what else and i'm like well (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you i also have i also have nightmares and she's like nightmares like can you tell me more about that she's like a therapist in training kind of so she's like new at this Mm -hmm. And what's great about her being new at this is that, like, she still kind of reacts emotionally to things, you know? Mm-hmm. Which, like, they're not, they don't do as much when they get better right. at it, I guess. Right, because you're not, though, so you're not actually supposed to, like, s- like, sit there and ingrain yourself in someone's life. But naturally, like, for a people no. person, it just happens. No, no, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, and I was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you I mentioned have... it, trauma. <laughs> you... Yeah, and I was just like, here are all of the nightmares that I've been having. Here are some of my top five most horrifying ones. And she was just like, uh, she was like, whoa. <laughs> she was like, okay, like, thank you for sharing that. We'll definitely be discussing that more in the future. <laughs> That's great. And I was like, that means... The- that means I failed the test. <laughs> I failed the test. Oh, I failed the test. No, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed this story. I enjoyed reading it with you. I had a a blast getting through this, and um, and I'm not and I'm not disappointed with the story, which is always really great when you get done reading like a hundred and fifty page thing. Oh, the past seven hours of my life have not been wasted. That's great. It is. It's a good feeling. And I, I'm not going to lie. I'm also going to look up some more about this imposter, too, because I want to know. Like, <laughs> I, I actually really want to know more about this. Like, oh, if it's dude. Like, skin, know, skinwalkers and the... native spirit shit. Like, yeah. um, even even just reading um, American Gods and knowing how, like... Oh, I love American Gods. Yeah, American love Gods it. always shows me, like, how people deal with, like spirits and the afterlife and knowing how bad things can get and in different religions oh it's 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 good it's good shit and i'm glad that you liked it i'm glad that you had a good time i did and i i like i think that you talked me out of my like initial saltiness about the dead sibling i think i actually feel better i will rationalize anything (laughs) (laughs) i am a sociopath um <laughs> so uh, yeah you have at least one emotion so maybe two even possibly three maybe <laughs> maybe not more than probably not more than three though um no like i honestly when it when a story lays foundation but doesn't answer everything i am like the first person to watch prometheus and be like oh no this makes exact sense <laughs> i'm like i honestly can't tell ever how i'm gonna like react to things like that and i i'm starting to think like at first i thought i had reasons but honestly i think it's just fucking random i'm like sometimes i'm like yay this was so great and so mysterious i don't need to know anything else (laughs) yes and then sometimes i'm like knowledge is power believe this like yeah galaxy brain (laughs) like (laughs) deep dive how could you not tell me 
I'll understand everything. You wait and see. <laughs> right. I don't think... Um, I'm glad that you feel that way because the the lore is absolutely true. Um, I don't know... The lore is so... It's fascinating. Like, I really want to know more about I've done it. A, I've done a deep dive on skinwalkers. I've also listened to a lot of lore about skinwalkers. Um, we've also read a lot of lore about skinwalkers. We've read three or four stories about skinwalkers. Because they're, they're, they're spooky. They're fun. They're, they're, they're fun. Um, what, what is more terrifying than being in a room with something that looks like a person, but isn't, and you know, it isn't mm. that's scary. <laughs> the unknown yeah, is scary. Don't much care for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's also like, it's like we were talking about in the last episode. It's like the idea of something that looks like someone you love and talks like someone you it's love. It's enough. And is trying very hard to convince you that it is someone you love, but isn't. Like, who? I'd fall for that hard. <laughs> Honestly, I probably would too. Show me any of my ex-girlfriends I- and just make them say something like, even relatively nice because I'll know it's not them, but I'll like it. You'll be like, oh, that's nice. I'll be like, oh, that makes up for everything bad you've ever done to me. Let's fuck. I don't know. I, I think for me, it's like if my fucking, if it was like my partner and I was like, and if he asked me to do something and I said, no, like I always do. And then he was like, okay, I'll go do it. Then I would know. (laughs) You're not him. (laughs) Wait a second. This is you impossible. Just... Wait a second. Yeah. You just fucking humored my complete irrationality <laughs> and general lack of respect. No, it can't be. <laughs> oh, that's fun. No, this is fun. We have fun here. <laughs> We're having fun. We're having so much fun. Uh, Let's talk about ways that we could be tricked into having our skin flayed. <laughs> The numbers are endless. Um, this was episode 153 with Cannibal Siren. I don't think I've introduced you since the first episode, honestly. I just think I assume people know who I'm reading this with uh, because it's a Am continuation the of girl? the old story. No, we have had another girl on. <laughs> oh, okay. I was about to say, well, I'm the token, so it's like easy to figure out. But now I'm not. Oh, shit. Okay. We, uh, so, yeah, we have a... a, a <laughs> A second girl who came on uh, post hundreds, so you had four episodes on her already. Um, her, her name is Alley Cat. Oh, I love that. I love cats. So, so does she. She is two of the fattest fucking cats I've ever seen. She also listens to these episodes, so I know that she's gonna be like, "My cats aren't that fat," and I'm gonna be like, "Yes, they are." <laughs> Hey, listen, as the proud cat mom of three fat-ass motherfuckers, I, I support your your cat's alley cat. We won't body shame your cat to go back to the, to the beginning. Back to the body shame and back to the question. Cannibal Siren, what is worse to clean up, throw up or diarrhea? You know what? After all of that and after everything... If it's between diarrhea and throw up, I'm going to pick the vomit. Really? Really, I am. Because, like, I think that poop is worse unless it's solidified. And if it's not a solid, then at that point, there's no difference except that one came out of your anus and one came out of your mouth before it could get through your anus. That's So you're going to take the mouth. 
Yep, exactly. See, for <laughs> me, for me, it's still in the stomach acid bile smell because the the stomach acid smell is what singes my nose hairs. You know, the the shit mm. smell like a baby, mm-hmm. like a baby who shits its pants. Like uh-huh. that doesn't make me. Yeah, yeah, that just yeah. makes me f- disgusted. It doesn't make me fucking want to th- yes. throw up in my mouth. Um, mm. So I I might I might well, still take diarrhea honestly. I respect that. I respect that immensely. I can't do it, but I respect it. <laughs> and that's how we'll end the episode. With mutual respect, vomit and diarrhea. And no body shaping. <laughs> Wait till the day's end when the moon is high A little rise with the tide with the lust for life out Unless an army and we'll run us a whore And then we'll look across the land until we stand at the shore I'll wait till day's end when the moon is high And then I'll rise with the tide with the lust for life out Unless an army and we'll run us a whore And then we'll look across the land until we stand at the shore